Greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Ronald's Hard News on Friday night program on BBS Radio. So thank you for joining us tonight, and I'd like to take a few moments to go into that heart space and center ourselves for the evening. So let's just take a few gentle breaths. Breathe into your nose, out through your mouth, or whatever breathing protocol you like to use. Gently, slowly, go into your heart space. And as we go into our heart space, let us gather with our guides and guardians, our ancestors, spirit teams. And we have this council fire in the center, so let us gather around close to that council fire in that virtual circle that we know how to do in that virtual way. And we're going to do the prayer of seven galactic directions with the Kimi drum. So you can journey with this drum beat. The Kimi drum is the linker of worlds. Above, the house of paradise, with the star people, the 
answer together. May their blessings greet us now. We welcome them below the half of earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its armaments so that we might end war. Source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized in the light of mutual love. Are you Hunaku, even Maya, even home? Are you Hunaku, even Maya, even home? Are you Hunaku? Even Maya, in the home. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. All the company of in my case, in the name of you. stay wherever that uh, drumbeat took you as we spend a few months to look at the um, galactic signature for today and the Mayan calendar, record of days, and the week ahead. So today, a four o'clock, that is the blue self-existing storm. And uh, this storm energy is... <clears throat> Is about the the four in the in the clock. So the storm energy is catalyzed energy, self generation, and the uh, four tone measuring form and define. So the affirmation for today: I define in order to catalyze measuring energy. I seal the matrix of self generation. With the self-existing tome of form, I am guided by the power of vision. So that guiding power today is man, the eagle. And uh, our occult wisdom in the fourth round that we're in at this point is the wind. So that we have that spiritual assistance from the wind. And our support is the sun, a how, and our challenge teacher today is the moon, Maluk. So there you go. That's the energies we're working with today, and uh, with these, <clears throat> this storm energy, and uh, let's look at the storm a little bit more. It's a visionary aspect. It's about creating transformation for others. It's about lighting clear thoughts. So let's embrace these gifts of possibility, of freedom, and the power of catalyzing as we embrace these energies of the storm. And let go of any addiction to crisis or despair or fear or any illusion of separateness as we 
feel about this day? Work with these energies. So as we embody the storm god, we are the catalyst that creates transformation for others. So we do that today. <laughs> and then moving on to Saturday, tomorrow, it's a five a how, so that's the overtone, the yellow overtone, overtone sun. And uh, five is the overtone, so it's the top of the pyramid. It is, it is also a catalyzer. It's that that one that spins it. <laughs> There's energies from there. So, um, yeah, and how the sun, it's that rise to Christ consciousness is a healing aspect. And we strive towards wholeness with this energy, transmitting energy to others. So let's embrace these gifts of that possibility thinking and unconditional love and the God self. As we go through our day tomorrow with this sun energy, let us surrender any limitation or any separation as we embrace these energies tomorrow. And then on Sunday, moving right along, it's a six image. So we're starting a new union. And that Amish energy, that is the dragon. So it's also the mother at the beginning. We're looking at with the, the first glyph, solar glyph. So we're working with that dragon energy. It's an artist aspect. So our work with the Amish is creation and self-dependence and trusting in the universe. And working with our clarity of mind as we embrace the gifts of the dragon, that source of creation, the beginning. We let go of any illusion of lack of support. So <clears throat> that's the niche. With that rhythmic tone, it's putting <clears throat> that action into that rhythmic six, two, two threes <laughs> happening, and it's... Um, works in a rhythm that way. So we have that rhythmic dragon energy. And Sunday is also the spring equinox. So we're celebrating that spring equinox on Sunday. And the actual length of the day is 12 hours and 6 minutes. <laughs> so we got extra time to do that. Anyway, um, yeah, that spring equinox is a very high energy day. We carry that energy for um, three days before and three days after. So and we're also in this full moon energy of today, which is um, which we we had a nice co-op energy with it. So we're working with full moon. We're working with the equinox. It's it's a lot of energy to work with and balance together. It, it is all balancing in 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 the equinox energy and we celebrate that uh, these days becoming longer <laughs> each day by two minutes according to my calendar it's pretty consistently two minutes longer every day so um, yeah let's celebrate the spring and the flowers and the return of life and all that's growing as we approach the last six weeks of spring in the Celtic way of counting the seasons, um, it's, it's, we start spring <laughs> in 
February the second. So that's just uh, another culture, another way that I I embrace that way as a farmer. Uh, it works definitely works for me. So I uh, celebrate the spring as halfway through. <laughs> anyway, let's look at what's happening on Monday. It's or uh, yeah, Monday. Monday's a portal day, so it's one of the few in this one of two in this union. So uh, let's let's use this extra dimensional energy for Monday, which is the Blue Galactic Night. It's an eight up ball, and we're working with that aspect aspect of the night as we. Um, work with our participation and belief in our abundance and as we learn from our dream time. So we have that extra dimensionality with it. So let's pay attention to our dreams on this day and see where we go and see if we can remember where we've been. (laughs) As we embrace these gifts, let's embrace that protection of the night and and being that mystery of life um, that the night reminds us about. So let's let go of any self-judgment or any withdrawal issues as we embrace these energies on Monday with that extra-dimensionality uh, portal. So enter enter into the night with that portal energy. And then on Wednesday, it's a nine-con, the yellow solar seed. Wait a minute. No, not Wednesday. That yeah, Tuesday is the eight off ball, and Wednesday is the nine con. It's the yellow solar seed. So we're working with that nine tone, another very activating tone, it's the solar tone, and it's just um, working with all that energy in action together in that nine energy. So it's the solar tone, and con is the seed. So let's plant a lot of seeds on Wednesday. <laughs> Start that garden and uh, with that good energy. And looking at that seed just a little bit more, it's a healing aspect and it's really working with our openness to life and our self-determination. It's actually harmony seeking. So we work with our timing and we embrace these gifts of possibility and that potential of creation that the seed carries with it. Let go of any stagnation or any lack of self-confidence with this energy as we um, let go of any hesitation as well. As we embrace these energies on Wednesday and then on Thursday, it's a 10 that red planetary serpent. So that serpent energy is a warrior aspect and it's, it's about remaining open to change and distinguishing between our body and our soul. And that separate energy is perfect for transmuting energy. So we do that with that good in that good serpent way as we embrace these gifts of that motivation to change and that instinct and body sensing that we have with our physical unit. So let's let go of any insecurities or fears of intimacy or any issues about the body or any blockages by the ego as we embrace these energies on Thursday. And then Friday when we come back, it's 11 Kimi, the white spectral world bridger. So 
go, that Kimi energy, that Kimi drum, it's the linker of worlds and it's a warrior aspect. So it's asking for us to work with forgiveness and moving into a state of grace as we embrace these energies of being that world bridger and bridging between the past and the future and working with transmutation. And it's got that spectral tone with it, that um, letting go, letting go of what no longer serves us and making those changes, make room for improvements. So let's let go of that which is no more. Let go of the ego, let go of any controlling behavior or any belief that life is a struggle. We'll talk about that some more next Friday when we come back. So that is the the week ahead in the Mayan way. And uh, I'd like to change my hat now as we are listening to support radio program. I want to do the housekeeping and let you know how, how we can contribute to this process coming together each week and how we can assist Tara and Rama with their needs. So first, BBS Radio. We need $300 each week for BBS Radio. And we're grateful that that's what we need this week. So it's still on Monday. And uh, $300, um, yeah, is what we need each week. So we're in good shape. Here's how we make a contribution to BBS Radio. Go into your heart space. See what is yours to give and then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 or scroll down and find the menu. We're looking for our listings on the menu because that's where we access our account. So on Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are all Pacific times, it's a night at the round table with the panel. And you click on that icon there, you'll access our account and you can make a donation in any amount. The same is true on Friday at the 6 o'clock hour. The hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday nights, and you click on that icon, that takes you to our account, and the same is true with the Saturday show at the 1.30 hour, and that's the true history, history, and the Sarah, and our galactic origins with Tara and Lama, and there you access our account by clicking on that icon. So, thank you for taking that action, thank you for your generosity and consistency, <laughs> in participation this way. Lots of gratitude for for all of you, for all the ways that you show up, and lots of gratitude for making that gift to our expenses that way. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they are out of food, out of cat food, out of gas, so they need, as soon as possible, some assistance with living expenses, and $300 would would do the job, uh, get them going. And um, they also have no bills due this week, but $400 in bills due next week. So we can always pitch in for that as we can. Um, that'll, that'll go for bills next week. And so there you go. That's what's needed this week for Tara and Rama. Here's how we make a donation. Um, you want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you click on the menu grid, and you will see the donate link near the bottom of that list. As you click on that, that'll take you to Rama's PayPal account. And there you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. 
If you have your own PayPal account, you can access Rama's PayPal for funds option at this email that he has for PayPal. And it is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And so that's all the information you need for that. Either way you do it, it's just absolutely perfect. We're so grateful for your donations. And then also, um, as you're sending something, please let Rama know what you sent when you sent it. And his email for that communication is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. Uh, and then, as you need it, uh, the physical address is Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, Post Office Box 280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And again, 87567 with that zip code. Okay, that's all the information for donations for the radio expenses and for Tyre and Rama. And then I'd also like to mention the web address for um, learning about and entering the, for, for the Rainbow Roundtable for Fremont. And you would go there to join and look at the products and see if you want to join. So this is that address, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www dot shop free mart three four letter words dot com forward slash T A R R A M and that's the username for the twenty thirteen Rainbow Roundtable site. There and then also um for the new gen coin which they if you're in Fremart you already have an a registration um, set for you, so you'd be using the same email address and such. So you need to be aware of that. <laughs> and so that's a that's a good place to join and participate, and uh, it helps everybody. It's a great source of passive income, and it is the address you want for that. <clears throat> um. And this is this is the uh, yeah this is the address https colon forward slash forward slash and www dot newgencoin and that's n u g e n c o i n dot com forward slash t a r r a m and that would be where you would join um, under Tar and Rama. And there's an account name I'll give you some number at some time. I'll give it to you when I write it down. <laughs> anyway, that's how that works. And it's it's working well for those who have been doing it and participating in it. Um, it's, it's very inspiring. <laughs> so take a look, look around, and, um, yeah, participate as you can. And so with that, I'm passing this talking stick. And but first, I want to say 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Uh, lots of gratitude for all your participation uh, with the with what we're doing here, and 
all the ways that you show up. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So here comes this talking stick, and it's got all kinds of spring things on this talking stick, <laughs> including Easter eggs. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the equinox, though. Um, and all the little people and lots of fairies and feathers, and then all of the big ones are in here, too. Quetzalcoatl and, and Excalibur. and uh, It's got all kinds of rays in the universe and uh, lots of rainbows. So, and tons of little people and all the elementals. And they all want to dance. So let's dance with all of them. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Greetings, everyone. And Rainbird, thank you. Rainbird said in a more literal sense that the equinox is already today. Because there's exactly 12 hours of day and 12 hours of nighttime. And that's what the equinox is talking about. So even though our calendars say it's on the 20th. Um, happy equinox, everybody. Space and time are quite amazing. Yeah. And also, today is the full moon. Yeah, full moon in Virgo. Right. It went full just a short time before, about four hours earlier than when um, we came into Libra. The moon went into Libra. Seven something in the morning. And anyway, Pacific time, it went, the full moon was at Pacific time, 12.18 a.m., this morning. So we will have a full moon. Uh, we do have a full moon in Virgo. And now the moon's in Libra. The full moon in Virgo offers the energy we need to really clean up our act and complete projects we have shelved. It is important to clean, cleanse our living and workspace. Yeah, Rama went about round with a little bit of uh, sage and cedar there. That's a good way to do it. And another one is to take a little bell, if you got one, and ring it three times in every corner, top and bottom of everywhere in the house. And then also three claps on each, each one of those corners. And then the sage, that's that wakes. It's it's it's, uh, it's uh, depends on how many quarters you got. <laughs> Our head has three quarters. Well, the houses you have more, more quarters. Okay, so um, so clearing our space will clear our mind of worry and confusion, distraction and frustration. This full moon asks us to honor the body temple. By taking the time to relax, mm -hmm. breathe long, deep, and slow, smile because it works, and believe in the magic that is all real stuff. It is. Of course, you've got to believe in it. 
Okay. So, um, and reflect in the illumination of the full moon and restore harmony and balance. Um, from an astrological perspective, the tightest aspect the full moon will be making is a trine to Pluto. Mm -hmm. A trine in astrology is the most harmonious aspect. So a trine to Pluto also means a trine to that harmony in transformation. That's what Pluto's about. It can be a bit uh, challenging. You know, yes, we can. <clears throat> um, so the moon trine Pluto brings heightened sensitivity, intuition, and psychic abilities, as well as deep healing and transformation. The moon will also be part of the grand earth trine. A grand trine represents gifts given by the cosmos, the universe. A grand earth trine gives effortless access to a deeper connection to Mother Earth, to the body, to self-worth, to self-love, to stability and nourishment. The points creating the grand earth trine are the moon, Pluto, and the north node. The north node is the path of destiny. The moon, Pluto, and the north node are creating a potent time during this full moon to really release anything that has been blocking us from walking a path that is truly authentic and in alignment with who you now are. I skipped a word there. This grand earth trine is also an amazing reminder to be fully present and in the moment. Every single moment. And this is a very short and sweet update, right, Rama? You want to give it? Fantastic. Oh, oh, just the king of swords sent me a text and said, go listen to cry on. Because it is much more uplifting than me telling you about how many bodies I've stacked to the sky. <laughs> it's dark humor, but it's, you know, let us focus on the return of the Christ. And this. the spring equinox. Yes. That's short and sweet and to the point, everybody. So now what, darling? Ooh. Well, there was an interesting article here. Physicists think they've spotted the ghosts of black holes from another universe. This relates to parallel universes that are connected by black holes. Mm-hmm. We are not living in the first universe. There were other universes in other eons before ours, a group of physicists has said. Like ours, these universes were full of black holes, and we can detect traces of those long-dead black holes 
in the cosmic microwave background, or CMB. The radioactive remnant of our universe's violent birth. At least that's the somewhat eccentric view of the group of theorists, including the prominent Oxford University mathematical physicist Roger Penrose, also an important Stephen, an important Stephen Hawking collaborator. Penrose and his acolytes argue for a modified version of the Big Bang. In Penrose and similarly inclined physicists' history of space and time, which they call the conformal cyclic cosmology, or CCC, universes bubble up, expand, and die in sequence with black holes from each leaving traces in the universes that follow. And in a new paper released August 6th, I'm assuming that was 2021 last year, yes, in the in the preprint journal archive, A-R-X-I-V, apparent evidence for Hawking points in the CMB sky, the conformal cyclic cosmology sky. Penrose, along with the State University of New York Maritime College, mathematician Daniel Ahn, A-N, and University of Warsaw, theoretical physics Krzysztof, that's K-R-Z-Y-S-Z-T-A-F, Krzysztof, <laughs> Meisner argued that those traces are visible in existing data from the CMB, the CMB again being the um, the CMB sky. Uh, what was that again? Cosmic microwave background. Oh yeah, sky. Penrose, along with state, yeah, Mary. Uh, okay, uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, argue that those traces are visible in existing data from the CMB. Daniel Ahn explained how these traces form and survive from one eon to the next. As the universe goes on and on, and the black holes gobble up everything, at a certain point, we are only going to have black holes, he told Live Science. According to Hawking's most famous theory, black holes slowly lose some of their mass and energy over time through radiation of massless particles called gravitons and photons. 
I'm following. Uh, as this Hawking radiation exists, quote, then what's going to happen is that these black holes will gradually, gradually shrink, unquote. At a certain point, those black holes would disintegrate entirely. On said, leaving the universe a massless soup of photons and gravitons. Quote, the thing about this period of time is that massless gravitons and photons don't really experience time or space, he said. Gravitons and photons, massless light speed travelers, don't experience time and space the same way we and all other massive, slower-moving objects in the universe do. Einstein's theory of relativity dictates that objects with mass seem to move through time slower as they approach the speed of light, and distances become skewed from their perspective. Massless objects like photons and gravitons travel at the speed of light, so they don't experience time or distance at all. And then they've got these pictures here. Just, I want you to be here, honey. The theoretical physicists Roger Penrose and Vahe Gerzadian proposed that the universe iterates through infinite cycles with the future time-like infinity of each previous iteration being identified with the Big Bang singularity of the next. Holy cow. So, a universe filled with only gravitons or photons will not have any sense of what is time or what is space. On said. At that point, some physicists, including Penrose, argue the vast, empty, post-black hole universe starts to resemble the ultra-compressed universe at the moment of the Big Bang, where there is no time or distance between anything. Besides, is there anything else that you learned or... Today, it was that short and sweet? That was it. Short and short and shorter. <laughs> okay, sweet, sweet and sweeter. Okay. And then it starts all over again on set. So, as the new universe contains none of the black holes from the previous universe, how could those black holes leave traces in the CMB? And the CMB, again, is the Cosmic Microwave Background. Answer. Penrose said that the traces are not of the black holes themselves, rather of the billions of years 
those objects spent putting energy out into their own universe via Hawking radiation. Quote, it's not the black hole's singularity or its actual physical body, he told Life Science. Rather, the entire Hawking radiation of the whole throughout its history. Here's what that means. All the time a black hole spent dissolving itself via Hawking radiation leaves a mark. And that mark made in the black background radiation frequencies of space can survive the death of the universe. As researchers could spot that mark, then the scientists would have reason to believe that CCC, meaning conformal cyclic cosmology, uh, reason to believe that CCC vision of the universe is right, or at least not definitely wrong. <laughs> to spot that faint mark against the reality, already, the already faint, excuse me, muddled radiation of the CMB, on set, he ran a kind of statistical tournament among patches of sky. On took circular regions in the third of the sky, where galaxies and starlight don't overwhelm the CMB. Next, he highlighted areas where the distribution of the microwave frequencies match what would be expected as Hawking points exist. He had those circles complete, in quotations, with one another. He said, to determine which area most nearly matched the expected spectrums of Hawking's points. Then, he compared the data with fake CMB, fake cosmic microwave background. How do you get that? Anyway, with fake cosmic microwave background data, he randomly generated. This trick was meant to rule out the possibility that those tentative Hawking points could have formed as the CMB were entirely random. As the randomly generated CMB data couldn't mimic those Hawking points, that would strongly suggest that the newly identified Hawking points were indeed from black holes of eons past. This isn't the first time that Penrose... Hmm? I can't understand you. Oh, got it, go. No, we've got four minutes. Okay. Till the time of the hour. Um, this trick was meant to rule out the possibility that those tentative Hawking points could have formed as the CMB were entirely random. 
as the randomly generated CMB data could not mimic those Hawking points, that would strongly suggest that the newly identified Hawking points were indeed from black holes of eons past. This is not the first time that Penrose has put out a paper appearing to identify Hawking points from a past universe. Back in 2010, he published a paper with the physicist Vahe Gerzadyan that made a similar claim. That publication sparked criticism from other physicists, failing to convince the scientific community writ large. Two follow-up papers, and then you can go there, but Rama, you didn't. It's got here and here there, <laughs> or you can might want to click on that. I think this is worth pursuing a little farther. Maybe you can check that out tomorrow. Argued that the evidence of Hawking points Penrose and Gerzadian identified was in fact the result of random noise in their data. <coughs> Still, Penrose presses forward. The physicist has also famously argued, without convincing many neuroscientists, that human consciousness is the result of quantum computing. Asked whether the black holes from our universe <coughs> might someday leave traces in the universe of the next eon, Penrose responded, yes, indeed. Okay, that's the word. Yes, indeed. Shall we get the number to go on to the conference call? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everyone. I'm just going to say it was, I know that the people that came to the stadium, it was a stadium that was supposed to house 80,000 people. And they reported that there was 132,000 people in that stadium. And I know it sounds like they were all paid to go there or something, but I mean, whatever. That happened. So we can discuss life in the universe and the everything. And happy full moon and happy equinox. And uh, next universe coming up. So we'll be back here uh, to BBS Radio at the top of the following hour. So we'll see you on that conference call, everyone. For this hour. Namaste. BBS Radio, best radio in the universe. Namaste, everybody. See you on the conference. <laughs> Precious art. 
Thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Now that we have had a few weeks to assimilate the powerful influx of cosmic forgiveness we received during the Olympic Games in February and the incredible light we were blessed with as we simultaneously ascended through the Aquarian Gateway, it is time for the next step in Mother Earth's greatly accelerated ascension process. The Company of Heaven is sharing that Mother Earth's planetary grid of divine love, which light workers have been co-creating for over 50 years, is now ready and able to withstand new and infinitely higher pulsations of our Father Mother God's divine love. Through the unified efforts of heaven and earth, this planet reached a frequency of vibration in 2001 that allowed our Father Mother God to breathe into our planetary grid of divine love, the highest aspect of their love that humanity had ever been able to safely receive. That aspect of divine love is known throughout all creation as the flame of transfiguring divine love. For the past 21 years, Mother Earth's planetary grid of transfiguring divine love has been blessing all life on this planet and assisting humanity in wondrous ways in our awakening process. Now, due to the seemingly miraculous shifts that have taken place recently within the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth, we are vibrating at a frequency of light that will allow our Father Mother God to safely breathe into our planetary grid of transfiguring divine love an infinitely higher frequency of their love, which is known through all creation as comprehensive divine love. God's comprehensive divine love not only incorporates God's transfiguring divine love, it infinitely transcends transfiguring love and lifts humanity into higher frequencies of love than we have ever been able to experience. In 2021, Lightworkers co-created a quantum field of comprehensive divine love for the very first time. That force field of light has been gently preparing every particle and wave of life on Earth at a cellular level for the activity of light that will bathe the earth during the equinox, which will take place March 21st and 22nd, 2022. Today, the company of heaven will lead us through an activity of light that will initiate the mighty feat of recalibrating Mother Earth's planetary grid of divine love from a frequency of transfiguring divine love 
into the awesome pulsations of our Father Mother God's comprehensive divine love. This influx of light will be intensified as we move through the days preceding, during, and following the March equinox. The beings of light asked me to share with you that the physical image of Mother Earth's planetary grid of transfiguring divine love, which we will show during this activity of light, will not change in visible form with this powerful energetic upgrade. However, they assure us that every single physical image of this grid of light is energetically connected directly to Mother Earth's grid of transfiguring divine love. This means that every image of this planetary grid will be simultaneously elevated and permanently secured in the transcendent pulsations of God's comprehensive divine love as we are guided through this activity of light by the company of heaven. If you have the heart call to do so, please join with me and lightworkers around the world now. And we begin. I am breathing in and out deeply and I am focusing the full power of my attention and my divine intentions on this activity of light as I go within to the divinity of my heart flame. I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman and child on earth. Collectively, humanity's I am presence is now merged into one luminous being of light that is cradling Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her within the divinity of our unified heart flames. As one voice, one breath, one heartbeat, and one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love, I invoke my Father Mother God and the legions of light throughout infinity. Beloved ones, come forth now. I am one with all of these magnificent forces of light. Through my sincere heart call, these selfless messengers of God have joyously come to help humanity's collective I Am Presence elevate Mother Earth's planetary grid of transfiguring divine love into the brand new frequencies and divine pulsations of our Father Mother God's comprehensive divine love. 
this gift of divine love from our godparents will build in momentum during the days leading up to, during and following the opening of the portal of light that will expand to full breadth during the March equinox on March 20th and 21st, 2022. Because of the life transforming shifts that have taken place within humanity's earthly bodies during the past few years, this awesome frequency of God's comprehensive divine love is now accessible to every man, woman, and child on earth. This powerful influx of light will be calibrated into Mother Earth's planetary grid through every person's fully integrated I am presence and the newly restored immortal victorious threefold flame in every heart. Beloved legions of light, I ask that you gather up every electron of precious life energy being expended by humanity during this sacred time. Purify this energy with the power and might of a thousand suns using the new fifth dimensional solar frequencies of the violet flame of God's cosmic forgiveness. Weave this purified energy into the collective cup of humanity's consciousness so that every electron of precious life energy released by the sons and daughters of God on earth during this time frame will be used to recalibrate Mother Earth's planetary grid into the highest possible frequencies of our Father Mother God's comprehensive divine love. Beloved Father Mother God, in order for humanity to God victoriously accomplish this holy endeavor, I ask that you now breathe the highest frequencies of prana and life force that humanity is capable of receiving through every person's holy breath. Now, as this exquisite holy breath bathes the earth, with every breath humanity takes, it is releasing new, greatly expanded patterns of unity consciousness, oneness, and reverence for all life from Mother Earth's new contingency plan. With every holy breath, these new patterns are now being encoded through humanity's collective I am presence into the heart and conscious mind of every person on earth. This is awakening the masses of humanity to the new and infinitely higher level of unity consciousness. Humanity's collective I am presence now commands 
with one voice. I am the cup, the Holy Grail, through which the highest possible frequencies of our Father Mother God's comprehensive divine love is now flowing to recalibrate Mother Earth's planetary grid system into a planetary grid of comprehensive divine love. With every holy breath, this new and exquisite frequency of God's love is being permanently encoded into Mother Earth's planetary grid and will elevate every person's light work into new levels of God's infinite perfection. This frequency of divine love will amplify every person's light work 1,000-fold every single day, thus exponentially empowering humanity's ability to add to the light of the world in ways beyond anything the sons and daughters of God have ever experienced. And so it is. Now, resonating in every heart flame is a profound truth that Mother Earth's newly recalibrated planetary grid of comprehensive divine love is the bridge to freedom over which this blessed planet and all her life are ascending into the highest fifth-dimensional realms of perfection that we have ever known. With every holy breath, humanity's collective I Am Presence now breathes into the mantle of mental and emotional strata of Earth the resplendent patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new contingency plan. As we decree, I am the cause of God's comprehensive divine love, permanently secured in Mother Earth's planetary grid. With every elevated holy breath, I am activating the basic spiritual forces of God's comprehensive divine love over which Mother Earth and all her life are now ascending into the fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of the new Earth. Our Father Mother God's comprehensive love is now thriving on Earth through humanity's collective I Am Presence. Through this activity of light, humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth are being raised into a higher frequency of supreme love consciousness. I am now the master of love I was always destined to be. I am a being of love, accepting responsibility for loving this sweet earth and all her life free. I am one with this blessed planet and Mother Earth is one with me. I am now being permanently invested 
with a more powerful force field of God's comprehensive divine love than I have ever been able to previously receive. This force field of light is infinitely powerful and is enabling me to reach a higher order of service as I am called now to amplify the light I am adding to the world. Beloved Father, Mother, God, and the legions of light who have assisted the evolutions of Earth, this sacred and holy day, I accept that this activity of light has been God victoriously accomplished and will build in power and might with every holy breath I take. And so it is, beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am that I am. Dear one, please hold this powerful activity of light in your heart flame and empower it with every holy breath you take from this moment through its completion following the March equinox. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week.
One more, everybody. Beautiful music. That was that was uh, music to Maitreya. Everyone. So, in preparation for the channel, please just take a breath, just a breath, nice one, it just settles you. Let your body soften in your chair, just relax around your neck. Take another breath. Give yourself this moment to just gather into yourself and bring your awareness from your thoughts into your body and let your breath just take you there. One inhale and one exhale at a time. And as you find your way into your body, come down towards your heart center, just the area in the middle of your chest, breathing in, breathing out, saying hello to your friend in your chest, and feeling the energy that your breath and your awareness brings to your heart. And maybe you'll feel that little internal, yes, we are here. We are here together. And along with that, yes, that validation of you, Expand that to feel the love that lives inside of that place we call the heart that's connected to your consciousness, connected to the oneness that you have with the great divine source, the all that is, the at 
one mint that you can feel when you are in that place in you. And spirit is touching your heart, touching your consciousness. And you feel the love, the understanding, you feel being cherished. Take another breath. And let that place of feeling cherished surround you like a beautiful light cocoon. And know that this is who you are. Not even what you deserve, but who you are. A cherished being of love and light here on the planet. To bring forth more of that through your own heart, through your own being, and through the wisdom and the messages of those around you who are also channels of love and light. So it is a good day to you, huh? Um, very good to see your energy, your love, your light, your brightness, your radiant glow. For those of you who we have not met, we are at Ronda. And we bring with us an entire council of beings. As our dear Lee says, we also want to go on record <laughs> to let you know that we came to our vessel, Marilyn, from the outside. In the beginning, she did not know who Lee Carroll was, if you can imagine such a thing. She did not know who Cryon was, and she did not believe in channeling until we showed up on the scene. And one of our very first transmissions in 1999 was to Google, it was brand new then in 98, was to Google Indigo Children by Carol. Hmm. And Avisor Maryland did not even know that he or the book existed. So understand that you each are predictions of the future as well. You each are holding that energy of wondrousness within you. You each are moving forward. And it is our job to help you understand that you are held in total and complete unconditional love. Take a deep breath. We ask our vessel Marilyn to draw some words of wisdom from the mastery deck from Cryon, since we are indeed related there. And of course, she drew one card and thought, that does not, they know this. And she drew another, and it was the same. <laughs> and she drew another, and it was the same. So she surrendered. She is a little stubborn sometimes. <laughs> Are you? Well, this one's for you. <laughs> Exist and love God. My goal, breathe this in, dearest. My goal and life purpose 
is simply to exist and love God. The love of God create passion and purpose within my life. Now understand that in that energy, if you have a difficult time with the word God, get over it. Because that is you. You are the source of all that is. <laughs> and you are a source of all that is not. You are the God that is within you. For that energy, you can call that energy source or spirit or the mystery or we don't care. Call it Barbara. It is all the same. <laughs> you understand what we say. Because we are here to help you understand and realize who you are. There is no discrepancy any longer. And of course, our vessel Marilyn, being the wonderfully enlightened, stubborn individual, she said, well, let me just draw one more card, just in case. It is blank. For you see, you are all things, all things. You are the creator of your world. You are the essence of this planet. You are the understatement and the understanding and the glorious magnification of every thought, every idea, every inkling that ever passed through your heart. And it is wondrous that now science is proving that. So what is passing through your heart? How wondrous you are. We hope so. If not, we'll keep coming back. Just to tell you. Huh? For you see that radiant energy around your life force in your heart center that creates every aspect of you. I recently had a gathering on a sacred lake in Arkansas of all places. And one person had trauma, drama going on in her life. This person was upset and that person was creating an energy. This person was creating an illness in her heart. This person was creating that. And she kept saying this person and that person. And yet every time she pointed, she had three fingers pointing back at herself. <laughs> and that is the key. We know sometimes it is difficult to understand that you are indeed 100% responsible for absolutely everything that happens in your life. We know sometimes you say, ah, rats, I don't like that part. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> now, when you create that essence of drama in your life, it is there for you to learn, grow, and experience. It is there for you to accommodate that energy. It is there for you to acknowledge that information and say, what is this message? When did I feel like this before? 
What is the real issue? Because the issue is never the issue. There's a real issue. And every time you think to yourself, oh, I know that. I know that answer. I don't have to pay attention to this issue. It, I know that. Then you really don't know. Because you need to look deeper. You each are the way showers of humanity. Do you know that? Someone shook their head. Well, you are the way shower of humanity. Now you know. You are creating the new vibration of humanity. That is why we are here for you. It is time, dearest, that you know that your purpose is to simply be, to exist. And because of that radiance in your heart, that existence expands so everything around you feels that essence of God within you. Or Barbara. Either one. <laughs> Trust yourself, dearest. For he love you so much. We came all this way just for you. We honor you. As soon as you trust yourself, you will indeed know how to live. Namaste. Namaste. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon, of Magnetic Service. It's a really profound message, is it not? That you just heard. And I want to enhance it even further, but I want it to be this group. There are so many who would ask the process of channeling, it's who's really talking? If you could suspend just for a moment in this room all of the ideas of what you believe is happening now, all the ideas that you've been told by those around you, by your parents, by the authorities, by the teachers, if you could suspend all of that into a soup of unknown and just for a moment be without any knowledge that you've been given. And be ready instead to accept that which is spiritual common sense. And that which intuitively you feel. Instead of that which you've been told you should. If you could do that for a moment. I'll tell you what would happen. You wouldn't ask who's talking. There would be a sudden alliance. You could know the words before I speak them. You'd know that inside each one of you, there is a glowing metaphysical, metaphorical ball of energy called your soul. 
Without bounds, it is. Without a place, really, it is. And yet it resides in you. Your soul also resides out of you. And we have said that before. It's enormous. It's got your name on it. Remember, I don't want you to remember. <laughs> I don't want you to remember anything you've been told. Right now, the playing field is blank with no energy at all. What do you feel is the possibility that you were born on purpose and that residing in you in some mysterious way is the beauty of the creator of everything. And what happens in this is a oneness that goes way beyond the room or, or you or the, or the land you live in. It's a, it's a oneness with the air you breathe which is also from the creator. And if you could suspend all of the things for just a moment that you've been told, this is the way it works, this is what to expect, here's what's next. If you suspend that, I would like to tell you something. You can start building a truth that goes beyond anything anyone has ever told you. And you can call it your name goes here, truth. Because it's the truth of you. And you start asking questions. And if you want to metaphysically, metaphorically muscle test them, do it. Am I here on purpose? Yes. Does the creator of the universe know me? Yes. Is it possible that when I die, as a human being, that beautiful part of me goes back to the creative source. Yes. Therefore, say it, it makes you eternal. It makes you not a human. The human is simply the vessel that is being used right now. It's in the mirror every day. But the real you is magnificent. And is loved, loved by God. God is the name you made up. Human being, you made it up. If you don't like the name, make up something else. So that you like it. The eternal light, the great central sun, spirit. Creator of all things. Give it a name. It's you. And what this actually will do, if you can simply suspend all of the chatter of who you're supposed to be, what this does is enable you and empower you to solve the things you came in with. Now we get personal. I know who's here. I know who's here because the God in you, the God in me, are the same. You're entangled with everyone here. And without even knowing that which is the problem you walked in with, I can say it's solvable. More than solvable. When you start changing the chemistry of your belief, your body responds.
We're going to talk more about that tonight. In fact, I'm going to give you the title of tonight's message. My partner, don't be shocked, because he has no idea. The title is, Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> now, my partner will worry about it all day. And that's his issue. <laughs> Dear ones, what I'm telling you, you really don't know. You really don't. You think you do. Yes, I've been told I have a piece of God inside. Thank you. What's for lunch? <laughs> oh, gosh. The profundity of what you have from the Creator inside you is lost on most. And when you start understanding that the fire of creation, of life itself, resides in you, you realize that all things that would straighten out your life are there already in the field. It's a matter of selecting them with a human consciousness that starts to be tuned to this truth. There are those who say, well, I have an alliance to a prophet that I'm very fond of. And I ask you this, does the prophet feature love? And you say, yes, the prophet features love. And I say, then stay with it. <laughs> because that is the key. The prophet will eventually, eventually tell you that you're God. The prophet will eventually tell you that your sons have gone. There's nothing wrong with the following of, of those who get messages as long as they are the truth of love. But you're not, you're not compelled dear ones, to go in any direction, except one, except one, sit there without a bias and accept what is coming in love. How many of you are brave enough to say, I have no idea what I'm going to do about this or that or this or that? But I have peace in my heart for the first time because I know what's coming. Solution, healing, peace. There are those in this room who cannot stop the chatter. I know who's here. And that chatter is something you will say, well, I was born with it, or it's always been there, or I worry about this and I worry about that. Are you listening, my partner? And the chatter is you, dear ones. There are those that, how can I stop the chatter? And the answer is, by stopping the chatter. There's a button in your brain labeled chatter, and you push it all the time. <laughs> and as strange and odd and humorous as it sounds, this is the bias that you've been taught. Taught these things by your parents, by society, by those you trust. This is a shift of everything. It's a shift of you. It's a shift of paradigms in this planet right now. There are so many awakening to the idea that you don't have to have a certain way. What has happened even the last two or three months? 
regarding leaders on the planet who's had a shift, of others who've had a shift. You start to see it on your news, dear ones. Not to repeat necessarily the channel we've given before, but the news will tell you, well, it can't be true, it's temporary, or there's something else, because of the chatter. And the chatter that says that nothing can be good, it'll always return to something poor. And expect drama. That's the chatter. Will someday start to reduce. When human beings tune in and expect good things and not bad. When the very word drama means something else. Let me ask you something. When 33 miners came out of the ground in 2010, was there drama? And the answer was yes. And it was all over their faces and they cried. And they hugged one another and they said, this is impossible. This never could have happened. And the relatives were on their knees. That's a drama, dear ones, that different than before. It's a drama of rejoicing, of human emotions in a state of euphoria because good things happen. Can you imagine yourself in a state of euphoria with tears running down your cheeks because good things have happened to you? And if you can, that's the first step. That's the first step. Knowing that you're here on purpose, that you deserve good things, and that there's a way out of the darkness. This is the message that crime has always given in so many different ways. But for you and for this group and for today, it's practical, it's pertinent, it's, it's real. Now I say what I always say. The message is winding down, so you don't have to suspend your belief anymore. You can go right back and put all the chatter back. Everything that everybody told you you should or should not do can come right back if you want it. So your free choice. Wouldn't it be nice to be your own person to the degree that people don't see you as obstinate or stubborn. They see you as loving. You're your own person in integrity and love. You know what you want. <clears throat> And it has results. And I will tell you, the people who may criticize you today because of what you say in this way will be on your doorstep later asking you how you did it. That's the truth. You have an avenue to peace and solution, lack of drama and health. That avenue points right back to the source of all that is which lives in you. And so it is. <clears throat> and so it is. And what is, is we are all servants of peace, everyone.
Greetings, Mother. <laughs> Happy St. Valentine's Day from yesterday and St. Joseph's Day from today in the light of the most radiant one. Greetings in the light, light of, of the, the most radiant, radiant one. In the office of the Christ and only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the violet flame. We ask at this time for breakthrough, for um insight for exaltation of the one beingness that we all are and for the transmutation of all that is not who we are in any time space continuum and in especially Ukraine this is the fight between the dark and the dark and the, uh, the light of God goddess. All it is is here. Greetings, Mother. Mother's here. Greeting, children of Ra. Happy spring equinox. Mm -hmm. The light pouring in. You've heard what Patty said. We are in a new frame of existence. <coughs> we all are the architects of this dream, which is manifesting at this time into physicality. It is about love on all levels. Right now, things don't look so good. Appearances are like that. It is about this simulated reality as this matrix falls away. The light pouring in becomes more apparent. Yes. White paw. <laughs> They're all talking tonight for some reason, Mother. Full moon in Virgo. The energies are hot. what we could say about our present situations. 
it's it's the energies pouring in. It's that full moon looking right out the window there at us. Yeah, it is. Everyone is feeling it. And the animals are affected by the light pouring in mm -hmm. greatly as maybe they even more as we are more attuned the energies can balance this story out we can say it again the light has won yet this period we are going through is the eye of the needle you could say and we'll repeat it again no nukes Mm -hmm. Yet the stories are out there. The final dramas being played out as you heard these two just talking. Stop the drama. Go within. Hear that stillness. The sound of oneness that is screaming in our ears. Mm -hmm. And that is that place that heals this whole story as we can all get on that page. It changes everything. And it's happening right now, whether we're aware or not. Mm -hmm. The sun, uh, in its magnificence, is pouring the light forth, reflected mm. from great central sun, all the Sons are daughters of the Most High. As you can relate to the planets as living beings, ask them what they sense, what they feel, what messages they have to give. It's the living internet we have this shell of this these machines we're talking through right here with electronics the true electronics is this 
That's why we chose to show up. It's how we make it through. And we will agree to disagree with Commander Cryon. We're taking these temples with us. It's about dying to live in this moment of ecstasy with what's happening as we are going through a transfiguration of the ages. It's not every day you get to see a sun go through its shift, move up in consciousness. That's a big deal. You're a big deal being part of it. We all are. Even that one screaming her head off is saying, we feel it too. <laughs> In many ways, a message is being put across. It's about love. Right at this time, our wayward children are in their final hours. Mm. And you all can feel it. Mm -hmm. And just send more love. That's what we can share because it is a glorious day to be alive even though it looks like Mordor so to speak it's not just illusions yes there are folks leaving and what we can say about that is in the cosmic scheme of things mm -hmm. we all decided to show up at this particular time like Kryon speaks about we show up in various soul groups mm. to make a difference this is one of those times and the quantum field let's say, 
has been tipped in our favor. We got it. How we use it for love is the big one. As so. This one's friend said, love is the answer. Imagine all the people. It's at this time. All the masters, teachers, angels are here to witness this transfiguration right now. And embrace the light pouring in. It makes it easier with the transfiguration. The body shifts are intense. We comprehend what Patty talked about. Comprehensive love pouring in may not have all the words she has yet. We are all servants of peace. Better be on our way. Time is speeding by quite quickly. Mother, I think it's going to come sooner than we think, isn't it? It is already transpiring. Mm -hmm. Because is this mindset that John Austin is setting up for the uh, new gen coin? Is that is that the new dispensation of how we do this economic money system together? It's a way of coming together with community that instead of raping the planet. We're restoring her mm -hmm. in the sense hemp cannabis has the answers. It can heal you, can run your car, can build your house, you can eat it. It even sucks up the radiation that has been used by the dark side. How many plants do you know that can do all these things? Hmm. That's just one of millions of life forms, trillions. We fail to have words to describe how many beings of living love, living light are pouring in at this time 
to shift this world. And uh, let's say, coming from a place we comprehend as everyday normality, it's called antimatter. We live on the other side of this story. You all live in the matter universe. As you get to know the other side, matter, antimatter, it all works together. It's part of how the universes connect each other. What you were reading have been universes upon universes before this one. That Earth has been participating in? Earth-like planets. Oh, not this one? Not necessarily this one. Well, you said this one. Well, no, you said we have been here for 450 billion years, I guess, right? Or the universe of Nebadon has been. Yes, and there have been universes before this one, (laughs) if you can comprehend that. Oh, my. And universes before that one. And this is where Q steps in, talking about Q in Star Trek, not Q anon. That is another reality. (laughs) What we could say is the continuum is about the ascended masters, angels, and teachers that we're all part of, that are here to see it through this transfiguration, not the false realities that are being pumped out by your one-eyed machine projector of the fake matrix. (laughs) It's, what can we say, get lost in the words. Better be on our way. (laughs) Greetings. Thank you for hanging out with us again tonight, Mother. In the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai Sabaoth. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai Sabaoth. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai Sabaoth. Eliyahu. 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 Yod hey. Yod hey. Mother. Adonai Basu. 
Paradas. Ah, namaste. Momentito, everyone. Momentito. How are you, mother? Oh, it's Brahma. <laughs> wow, that full moon is strong. Where have you been? Mm. Um, I have been in one of the arboretums on the New Jerusalem. Mm. Talking to the trees, as I often do. <laughs> and, and did they answer you? And they answered me in the way where I saw all these, like fireflies in the trees, just twinkling and glowing. And... I just had to accept what they were saying. It was flashing like um, Morris code. And I don't remember Morris code too well, yet what it was saying is, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Mm. This is what the biggest thing that's going on right now on this planet because well these oligarchs just don't it's, you know, it's way too profitable we, to go around playing war games they're playing with the final story and Astar has said no nukes and I would take him for his word <laughs> This is a lot bigger than anybody can imagine. I'll say that. It's huge. Well, let's get and on. I'm just a fly on the back of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> let's get on with the let's get on with world peace. How's that? Yes. That's a simulcast with the enactment of the Sar Law. Hey. I we can't have somebody who ordered 9-11 running the show here or playing like they are. I think that's send more love. <laughs> you think that's like temporary is it is a very temporary, temporary scenario in this larger story because yeah. Love is the answer. Okay, well, we're going to make a change in the energy. Here comes democracy now, everybody. Here we go.
from New York, this is Democracy Now! Even before the conflict, developing countries were struggling to recover from the pandemic with record inflation, rising interest rates, and looming debt burdens. Their ability to respond has been erased by exponential increases in the cost of financing. Now, their breadbasket is being bombed. The United Nations is warning Russia's war in Ukraine could lead to millions going hungry in the global south as the price of wheat and fertilizer soar. We'll look at the key role Russia and Ukraine play in feeding the world with Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World's Food System. He'll talk about the four C's of global hunger, climate, COVID, conflict, and capitalism. Then to Afghanistan, we'll speak to Matthew Akins, author of the new book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees. Imagine right now if Ukrainians, instead of being allowed to cross freely into neighboring countries, into the EU, where they don't require visas, imagine if they were being forced to cross the mountains and sea with smugglers and risk their lives just to escape this war. And that, of course, is a situation for Afghans, as it was for Syrians, as it was for people in most conflicts in the world. We'll talk about the growing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan with Matthew Akins, as well as his remarkable new book about traveling with Afghan refugees as they sought a safe place to live. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia has widened its assault on Ukraine more than three weeks after President Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to invade. On Friday morning, Russian missiles struck an aircraft repair plant near the civilian airport in Lviv. The attack in western Ukraine came just 50 miles from the border with Poland, a NATO member. Russian artillery fell on a secondary school in a city cultural center in a town near Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. That attack killed 23 people. Russian shells also triggered a massive fire in Kharkiv that destroyed one of the largest markets in Eastern Europe, killing at least three people. More strikes have hit the capital, Kiev. In the southern Ukraine, Russian ships are shelling the Black Sea port city of Odessa and Mariupol. Officials say 30,000 residents have managed to escape, but more than 350,000 remain besieged without adequate food, water, or medicine. This is Nadezhda, a Maripol retiree who survived a Russian strike on her apartment block. My grandson went outside, all of us went to the street, and I was left as the last one, and then there was an explosion. We were left without anything. We are living in basements. It's a horror. What for? Tell me. What for? What are we guilty of? In whose eyes are we guilty? At the United Nations, political affairs chief Rosemary DiCarlo told the UN Security Council Thursday the UN has confirmed 726 civilians killed and nearly 1,200 injured so far during Russia's assault. Among the dead, 115 and wounded, 115 children. Much higher. Most of these casualties were caused by the use in populated areas of explosive weapons with a wide impact area. Hundreds of residential buildings have been damaged or destroyed, as have hospitals and schools. 
Meanwhile, U.S. intelligence officials say more than 7,000 Russian troops have been killed during the first three weeks of fighting, including young conscripts forced into Russian military service. The House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly Thursday to sever normal trade relations with Russia over its assaults on Ukraine and to further sanction Belarus over its support of Russia's military. The bill now heads to the Senate, where Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised a speedy debate. Meanwhile, President Biden speaking by phone with Chinese leader Xi Jinping today. Ahead of the talk, Secretary of State Tony Blinken said China will face consequences if it moves to resupply Russia's military or takes other steps to support the Ukraine invasion. We'll make clear that China will bear responsibility for any actions it takes to support Russia's aggression, and we will not hesitate to impose costs. The World Health Organization is warning the coronavirus pandemic is far from over, with the number of global daily cases again on the rise. Many European countries are experiencing a new surge in cases tied to BA.2, a fast-spreading subvariant of the Omicron variant. China's expanded lockdowns in major cities as it struggles to maintain its zero-COVID strategy amidst its worst outbreak since early 2020. Meanwhile, South Korea reported more than 620,000 new cases and 429 deaths Thursday alone. Until this year, South Korea had one of the world's most successful responses to COVID-19. Here in the United States, the head of President Biden's coronavirus task force is stepping down. The White House says Jeff Zions will be replaced by Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Zions drew praise early in Biden's presidency for his science-based approach to the pandemic, but drew fire for failing to make rapid antigen tests and N95 masks widely available and affordable to the public. He also killed a proposal that would have provided paid quarantine and isolation for most U.S. workers in a statement public citizen said, quote, the Zions-led COVID response refused to challenge Big Pharma's monopoly control in the U.S. and globally over technologies that relied crucially on public support. As a result, the United States and other rich countries failed to expand vaccine supplies sufficient to meet global need. An Australian appeals court has overturned a historic 2021 ruling that found the government had a duty of care to protect children from the effects of the climate catastrophe. The case was brought by Australian teenagers in a bid to prevent the expansion of a coal mine. The young plaintiffs could still appeal the ruling. This comes as seven youth climate activists in Utah launched a new suit against their state and Utah officials this week. They argue fossil fuel development violates their constitutional rights and poses an existential threat to Utah's children. A U.S. federal appeals court ruled the Biden administration can factor in the cost of the climate crisis and policy decisions. The decision stays a ruling from a lower court, which banned the administration from considering what is referred to as the social cost of carbon. It could affect upcoming decisions on oil and gas drilling leases and regulatory practices. Sprawling Saharan sandstorms cast an orange glow across European skies this week. The effect was most dramatic in Spain, where authorities urge residents to stay indoors to avoid breathing in the coarse particulate matter. Scientists warn the climate crisis will intensify such events in the coming years. In Western Sahara, 
A delegation of U.S.-based volunteers has arrived at the home of the prominent Sahrawi human rights defender Sultana Haya, her sister Luara, and their family. It's a rare visit by international human rights observers to the territory, which has suffered under Moroccan occupation since 1975. The U.S. delegation includes Adrian Kinney, a former U.S. Army intelligence officer and president of Veterans for Peace. Their visit breaks a 482-day siege of the home where family members have been forcibly confined by Moroccan security forces since November of 2020. The Chaya sisters say they were raped last year by Moroccan agents in front of their 84-year-old mother. The agents also stole mobile phones, destroyed belongings, and threw trash, urine, and noxious black liquid into the family's drinking water storage tank. To see our interview with Sultana Chaya, go to our website, democracynow.org, and link to our documentary, Four Days in Western Sahara, Africa's Last Colony. In East Timor, voters are heading to the polls Saturday. Among a field of 16 presidential candidates are incumbent Francisco Luolo Guterres of the Revolutionary Front for an Independent East Timor and former President José Ramos Horta, a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Ramos Horta has been leading in the polls. The winner will take office May 2022, the 20th anniversary of East Timor's independence from Indonesia. Peru's top court has authorized the release of 83-year-old former President Alberto Fujimori from prison. Fujimori served less than 15 years of a 25-year sentence for human rights abuses and crimes committed during his rule in the 1990s, including kidnapping, bribery, and ordering massacres by death squads. The government of President Pedro Castillo said it would appeal the ruling before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Protesters took to the streets following the news. This is Gisela former Peruvian culture minister whose brother was murdered during Fujimori's dictatorship. We spontaneously came out to react to this unjust and illegal decision from the Constitutional Tribunal, which gives Fujimori freedom. He is a former president who violated human rights. We are demanding that our right to justice as massacre victims' relatives is guaranteed. A judge in Honduras has granted the extradition of former President Juan Orlando Hernandez to the United States on drug trafficking and firearms charges. Hernandez is a longtime U.S. ally who ended his presidential term less than two months ago. He's also accused of accepting millions of dollars in bribes to shield drug traffickers from the law. In a court filing, witnesses say the ex-president said he wanted to shove cocaine, quote, right up the noses of the gringos. A warning to our audience. The following story contains graphic footage of police violence. In Los Angeles, newly released video shows the death of Edward Bronstein at the hands of California Highway Patrol officers. The 38-year-old father of five was arrested in March of 2020 on suspicion of driving under the influence and brought to a chip station in the Los Angeles suburb of Altadena. A 17-minute video recorded by a police sergeant opens with officers demanding Bronstein give a blood sample to measure his blood alcohol level. You're bringing the fight to this, not us. I'm not fighting it at all. Then have a seat and provide your arm. This is your last opportunity. Otherwise, you're going face down on the mat, and we're going to keep on going. After Bronstein hesitates, five officers tackle and pin him to the ground, pressing their combined body weight into Bronstein's back and neck. 
shows officers ignoring Bronstein's pleas to willingly give a blood sample. He screams repeatedly and gasps, I can't breathe 12 times. Stop yelling! Bronstein's screams grow quieter until he falls silent. Still two minutes pass as officers continue to draw blood. One officer checks for a pulse, calls Bronstein's name, slaps him in the side of the head as he appears to be unconscious. Officers call for a paramedic, but continue to draw blood from Bronstein's limp body. More than 11 minutes after Bronstein's last screams, oh officers finally begin administering CPR. Bronstein's family is suing the California Highway Patrol for wrongful death, assault, and battery, civil rights violations, and failure to render aid. A federal judge ruled Bronstein's family had a right to view the video and make it public after California state attorneys fought to prevent its release. Bronstein's family is also demanding criminal charges for the officers involved. And in Washington, D.C., faculty at Howard University have announced they could go on strike next week over unresolved issues with their working conditions, including below living wages for non-tenured educators. This is Cyrus Hampton, a contingent faculty member who teaches full-time in Howard's English department. One of the top historically black colleges and universities in the United States. Last fall, students won improvements to university housing and other concessions after they held a weeks-long sit-in protest occupying a student center on campus. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the United Nations is warning Russia's war in Ukraine could lead to millions going hungry in the global south as the price of wheat and fertilizer soar. We'll look at the key role Russia and Ukraine play in feeding the world with Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World's Food System. Stay with us. composer Frederick Chopin in the ruins of her home outside Kiev 
after it was damaged by Russian shelling. The video was recorded by her daughter, who turns her camera to show shattered glass, blown away doors, broken furniture. The video has since gone viral. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is warning Russia's invasion of Ukraine could lead to a, quote, hurricane of hunger and a meltdown of the global food system. Wheat and fertilizer prices have soared since the war began three weeks ago. The UN's Food and Agricultural Organization warns global food prices could jump by 22 percent this year, which will have a devastating impact on the global south. Russia is the world's largest wheat and fertilizer exporter. Ukraine is the world's fifth largest wheat exporter. The two countries are also major exporters of corn and barley. Rising food prices will also contribute to higher food prices. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed the crisis earlier this week. He said the breadbasket of the developing world is being bombed. While war reigns over Ukraine, a sword of Damocles hangs over the global economy, especially in the developing world. Even before the conflict, developing countries were struggling to recover from the pandemic with record inflation, rising interest rates, and looming debt burdens. Their ability to respond has been erased by exponential increases in the cost of financing. Now, their breadbasket is being bombed. Russia and Ukraine represent more than half of the world's supply of sunflower oil and about 30% of the world's wheat. Ukraine alone provides more than half of the world's food programs with supply. Food, fuel, and fertilizer prices are skyrocketing. Supply chains are being disrupted. And the costs and delays of transportation of imported goods, when available, are at record levels. And all of this is hitting the poorest, the hardest, and planting the seeds for political instability and unrest around the globe. Grain prices have already exceeded those at the start of the Arab Spring and the food riots of 2007-2008. The FAO's Global Food Prices Index is at a, its highest level ever. 45 African and least developed countries import at least one-third of their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. 18 of those countries import at least 50%. This includes countries like Burkina Faso, Egypt, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan and Yemen. We must do everything possible to avert a hurricane, a hurricane of hunger and the meltdown of the global food system. Those are the words of the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres earlier this week. To talk more about how Russia's war in Ukraine is leading to a global food crisis, we're joined by Raj Patel, research professor at the University of Texas, Austin, author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World's Food System, and co-director of the documentary The Ants and the Grasshopper, which focuses on agroecology, hunger, and climate change. He also serves on the International Panel of Experts on sustainable food systems. So, Raj, together, Ukraine and Russia provide something like a quarter of the world's wheat. Can you talk about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is threatening the global south? 
Well, you're, you're quite right, Amy. Between Russia and Ukraine, about 28% of the global uh, wheat trade uh, measured by weight comes from Russia and uh, Ukraine. Uh, so, it, you know, for, for some countries, like, for example, Eritrea, Eritrea imports 100% of its wheat from the combined uh, sources of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but it's not just countries that import wheat directly from these countries that are feeling the impact because you know what, what will happen is that uh, with the absence of these stocks uh, available the global price in wheat will go up and uh, countries will try and source that wheat from other places but what that means uh, is that globally uh, the, the price of wheat is going up and that the the shocks uh, of the Ukraine uh, invasion get propagated everywhere. Uh, and that's how you will be able to see an increase in hunger as a result of this. Um, the United Nations has been modeling that uh, now the, the, the global number of people who are suffering uh, under nutrition uh, will hit possibly 830 million people. Uh, and that's driven by uh, price increases, uh, as you mentioned before, of uh, you know, up to 22% in global wheat markets. So uh, what's happening is that when, once uh, the, the supply becomes uncertain, global markets price in the uncertainty. Uh, you see wheat trading at uh, incredibly high levels, hitting record levels earlier on this month. Uh, and that means that with high prices, uh, you're likely to see the kinds of instability that uh, the Secretary General was mentioning earlier on. And talk about how the seasons work right now. I mean, we're moving into, in just a few weeks, what would be um, a planting season, right, in Ukraine and Russia. Right. Uh, and so what we're seeing at the moment is that farmers, I mean, you may have seen some footage of farmers trying uh, uh, to, to get into their fields uh, and uh, to, to, to access some of the wheat, that's, some of the winter wheat that's been uh, you know, ready for harvest and getting ready for spring planting. Uh, all of that becomes much less certain. Uh, and again, that uncertainty propagates worldwide because of the other commodity that is uh, under threat here or that, that's affected, and that's fertilizer. Uh, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, Russia is the world's largest uh, nitrogen fertilizer exporter, uh, and it is uh, uh, also a significant exporter of uh, potash uh, and phosphorus. Uh, all of these are things that industrial agriculture requires in order to be able to uh, you know, get the yields that we're accustomed to. Uh, with the price of all these uh, fertilizers going up, it's not just farmers in Ukraine who are suffering the, the impacts. Uh, globally, farmers who are dependent on these fertilizers are starting to make uh, decisions about planting spring uh, crops, for instance, uh, in North America. Uh, and the supply response isn't as robust as one might think. You know, it's not as if farmers are heading off into the fields uh, and deciding that they need to cover everything with wheat, in large part because it's going to be expensive to fertilize that, and also in large part because we're already seeing a drought uh, in large parts of the wheat belt uh, spurred by climate change. And so this sort of combination of the, the global network uh, of uh, international commodity prices driving up the prices everywhere mean that farmers are um, you know, thinking twice about whether to vastly increase uh, the, the number of uh, acres they have under wheat production. 30% of Yemen's wheat imports come from Ukraine. Shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many Yemenis rushed to buy flour and expressed concern about rising food prices. This is an example. 
The Ukrainian-Russian war will affect the whole world and not just us. This war will affect import, export, and trade because we are an importer of wheat, and most of the foodstuffs are from abroad, so undoubtedly we will be affected. But we have great confidence in God that it will be resolved, God willing. Everything is available, whether wheat or wheat flour, but we were surprised by the citizens' demand because of the Ukraine war, although it had no effect. Our country has a war, and prices are fixed as we suffer from war. But the war between Russia and Ukraine caused people's demand for wheat to increase so much that some traders raised their prices because of the great demand. Although wheat flour is available, and everything is available, whether wheat or wheat flour. Food costs have already more than doubled in many areas of Yemen in the past year. According to the UN, more than 17.4 million Yemenis are food insecure. 1.6 million in Yemen are expected to fall into emergency levels of hunger in coming months. Can you elaborate on this, Raj Patel? Well, uh, I mean, again, what, what, what we've seen is that this conflict is happening uh, after a, a dismal uh, two years of the pandemic and a sort of dismal 10 years of recovery after the last global recession. Uh, so all of this is, is sort of compounding one another. I mean, let's, let's start with, uh, you know, if we're thinking about the, the drivers of hunger internationally, um, you, you can sort of uh, help you can remember them by thinking of four Cs. Uh, most recently, of course, COVID, uh, which has... Uh, uh, caused uh, global increases in levels of hunger, uh, not because COVID attacks cereals or, you know, the, the, the COVID uh, in some way uh, you know, destroys food directly, but because COVID had a massive impact on the economies of countries around the world, particularly in the global south. Uh, and while we in the United States were able to dodge the worst of it with merely 40 million people uh, in this country being food insecure, and, and somehow that's considered uh, acceptable. Uh, globally, the number of people who are food insecure uh, is uh, in excess of 2.3 billion. That's a huge increase uh, on the figures before the pandemic. Uh, so COVID, uh, you know, by generating poverty, also generated hunger. So on top of COVID, uh, you've got conflict. And again, uh, the Ukraine is uh, obviously a major conflict, but it's not the only one. Uh, and the, the dynamics of conflict uh, are invariably sort of similar in that uh, when conflict happens, farming is disrupted when you know, the, the, the battlefield moves through rural areas. But it also has long term impl implications for farmers, uh, not just in sort of destroying the land and the capacity to farm, uh, but also through the, the human populations that move through the land. Uh, and all of that, again, drives up hunger. Uh, the third thing, of course, to, to worry about is climate change. Again, you, you mentioned this uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, climate change is just getting worse. Um, and, uh, you know, there are large parts of the world where you see, you know, 10 years ago, we had uh, a range of food rebellions, people taking to the streets because of the high price, uh, in particular, of wheat. Uh, but it, 10 years ago, the high price of wheat was generated by uh, a once in 500 year climatic event in Russia, a heat wave uh, that killed uh, tens of thousands of people directly, but then propagated uh, these huge spikes in the price of wheat around the world. And right now, uh, we're in the middle of many severe weather events you know, in Mozambique, where 10 years ago uh, there were these uh, food rebellions. Uh, Mozambique is just recovering from a Category 3 cyclone, Cyclone Bombay, uh, that passed through the area and has left uh, vast amounts of devastation. So climate change is making not just the farming 
uh, of food much harder. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned the drought earlier on uh, in uh, in the United States, but you know, these, these extreme weather events are happening everywhere. Uh, but they're, they're also generating displacement and generating the destruction of stocks that, again, is driving hunger. And so the fourth C in global hunger, of course, is capitalism. Uh, the way that we grow food today is not uh, uh, with an ambition to make sure that everyone in the world is fed in a nutritious way. The, the reason to grow food is to make money. And as exactly. long as food is grown uh, in order to generate profit rather than to end hunger, then we are structurally always going to have people who cannot afford that food. Uh, and tragically, as a result of the, the rise in prices, uh, we are certain to see uh, you know, tens of millions more people uh, fall into hunger, uh, not just in Eritrea, but throughout the global south, particularly actually in uh, Asia, the Asia-Pacific region is going to be much harder hit uh, just because of the levels of hunger that pre-exist there. But sub-Saharan Africa is going to have it pretty tough too. You know, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, mentioned the Arab Spring in his speech warning how the invasion of Ukraine can lead to deepening hunger uh, in the world. Um, a sharp rise in the cost of wheat um, coincided in 2011 with the Arab Spring. Can you talk about that juxtaposition? So the, the Secretary General actually mentioned two uh, moments of high prices uh, and low affordability of food. So that there was a 2007-2008 spike uh, that saw protests in places like Haiti, for instance. Uh, and then, yes, in uh, 2010, we saw the Arab Spring begin, uh, it, it triggered, in fact, by uh, assaults on food vendors. Uh, and all of a sudden, you saw uh, mass movements of people taking to the streets at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, uh, driven in part by government's inability to be able to provide affordable food when people have come to expect that. Uh, it would be reasonable to expect more protests this time around. Uh, but in the intervening years, uh, what we've, we've not seen governments necessarily flock to the idea that what we need is grain storage. And particularly with interest rates rising, grain storage becomes increasingly expensive for countries. Uh, and instead, what we're seeing is, you know, globally, a sort of turn to a nationalism in a way that casts the working class and casts the poorest off. Uh, and so wherever you look, you find these sort of strong men around the world, whether it's Putin or uh, Modi in India, for instance, presiding over catastrophic outcomes, particularly in hunger, uh, you know, because of COVID and because of their mismanagement of the economy. And instead of uh, admitting that, in fact, what, what is needed is a redistribution of wealth and resources to the poorest, uh, you see this national turn where it becomes criminalized uh, to, 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 to criticize the government, it becomes treasonous uh, to, to say that, that anything other than you know, fighting for the flag is the right thing to do. And under cover of this sort of bourgeois patriotism, the working class are being sold out. Uh, so I, I would fully expect to see far more protests of people taking to the street. Uh, and if we, if it's not a, 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 a particular prophecy that I'm making here. Uh, we've already seen protests uh, in countries that have defaulted on their debt under the pandemic. Uh, we've seen big protests in Sri Lanka, for instance. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I think it's easy to see a moment in which uh, the forces of nationalism uh, are up against the forces uh, uh, and demands of working class members of society who are uh, up against uh, a fairly you know, robust, uh, patriotic and militarized response. Uh, and I, I worry that we will see a return, as we did in 2010, of 
uh, police forces opening fire on unarmed working-class people who are making a demand simply for their daily bread. I mean, in Egypt, you have typically the world's largest wheat importer buying more than 60% of its wheat abroad. 80% of that is from Russia and Ukraine. And exactly, although some of those shipments have managed to get through, the short to medium term prognosis is not good. And because governments have failed to learn the lesson of the past two supply shocks, and because the international development agencies have generally not said, well, yeah, the wise thing to do is for you to withdraw from the international trading system and make sure your domestic supply chains are robust. Uh, we're seeing, I, I, I worry with you, Amy, that the, the, we're being set up to see many more protests. Uh, and without, you know, in the intervening 10 years, uh, the left has been eroded, uh, and not, not eroded, but, but uh, been under assault so systematically uh, that uh, I worry that the outcome is going to be a sort of revival of a certain kind of nationalism uh, that you know, that portends violence towards the working class rather than their liberation. Let me ask you about here at home. The Financial Times has reported the U.S. Farmed Service Agency is thinking about loosening federal restrictions on land. Can you explain what exactly that means and what the effects of this would be if it happens? Well, it's a little too early to um, to say. I mean, I, I was struck by this, this almost throwaway line in the Financial Times where um, you know, the Financial Times was investigating, well, is the response uh, to be able to plant more wheat here in the United States? And uh, so someone from the federal government was saying, well, you know, we're, we're monitoring the situation very closely. But what this might mean uh, is uh, that, that you know, conservation easements uh, can be violated uh, and that uh, you know, more land can be put under planting. But what I'm also seeing and, and hearing is that farmers are, are not in a position to be able to take full advantage of that uh, because, again, high fertilizer prices mean that you know, if you start planting something, you really do have to take care of the crop in order to be able to make it economical. But if fertilizer prices are high, that's a problem. And then again, uh, because of climate change here in the United States and because of drought in some of the, 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 the grain baskets, and because of you know, the, the sort of violence of industrial agriculture really draining aquifers, uh, it's not immediately clear that even if the federal government were to open up its lands to plant baby plant um, in a sort of echo of 2008 drill baby drill, uh, it's not clear that the supply response is going to be adequate. And even if farmers did do that, it would still be four months until spring wheat came in. Uh, so, you know, in, in the short term, uh, you know, there's very little relief that the United States is in a position to provide. Uh, but the worry, again, is that under cover of a certain kind of patriotism, uh, there will be transfers of resources to, uh, you know, to, to certain kinds of stakeholders without a concomitant fall in the level of hunger globally or even here in the United States. So Raj Patel, we only have a minute and I wanted to ask how the world food system can be changed to better be prepared for crises like these, failing if it was at all possible to prevent war from happening at all. Well, uh, certainly a transition towards more agroecological farming, I think, is uh, uh, wise for so many reasons. It uh, increases our resilience to climate change, uh, it shortens supply chains, it makes our uh, food system more robust uh, against extreme weather, uh, it relocalizes the economy in a way that can support uh, many more jobs and ensure that there is uh, you know, a, a return to a certain kind of commitment to making sure that everyone gets fed. And of course, this will require a real commitment, not just to land reform, but to gender equality, because
Again, hunger is a globally uh, gendered phenomenon. Uh, and this will also require reparations from the global north to the global south for the damage we've caused these global agricultural systems to be so vulnerable in the first place. We have the solutions, uh, but I think embracing the full sweep of a, a transformative agroecological uh, shift in, in food systems is, is very doable. We have the policies, we know what to do, uh, and what we have to do is fight uh, for, for the political change to make that possible. Raj Patel, I want to thank you for being with us. Research professor at University of Texas, Austin, author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World's Food System. Coming up, we speak to Matthew Akins, author of the new book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees. Stay with us. <laughs> DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Afghanistan, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Philip O'Grandi, visited the Afghan capital of Kabul this week and urged the international community not to neglect Afghanistan, where more than half the population is experiencing acute hunger. When the entire attention of the world is focused on Ukraine and, by the way, on the refugee crisis that Ukraine, the, the Ukraine war is producing, and rightly so because it's big, it's serious, I thought it was important to pass the message that other situations which also require political attention and resources should not be forgotten and neglected, especially Afghanistan. Afghanistan has faced a looming humanitarian crisis since the Taliban took control last August with millions on the brink of starvation. The UN Refugee Agency says 3.4 million Afghans are internally displaced. Another 2.6 million Afghans have fled Afghanistan as refugees. To discuss all of this, we spoke to the award-winning journalist Matthew Aikens, contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, who's reported on the U.S. occupation and war in Afghanistan since 2008. He's written a remarkable new book. It's called The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees. In his New York Times essay, headlined, We've Never Been Smuggled Before, he writes about Afghans who are trying to escape their country as its economy is collapsing. Nermeen Sheikh and I recently interviewed Matthew Akins. I began by asking him to answer a question he poses in his article. Who does the West consider worthy of saving? Imagine right now if... Ukrainians, instead of being allowed to cross freely into neighboring countries, into the EU, where they don't require visas, imagine if they were being forced to cross the mountains and sea with smugglers and risk their lives just to escape this war. And that, of course, is a situation for Afghans, as it was for Syrians, as it was for people in most conflicts in the world. Um, they're caged in by these borders and not able to cross freely without visas. And when I went to Afghanistan 
this summer and fall, I went to the border with Iran and witnessed a new wave of Afghans who are displaced, who are fleeing their country, and spoke to a young couple there named Jawad Shukriya, who are the subject of this article that you mentioned, and they had decided to escape the Taliban and were facing this deadly journey through the desert um, in order to reach safety, and that unfortunately is a situation for Afghans. Mm -hmm. And Matt, uh, uh, on the question of uh, uh, refugees and where Afghan refugees uh, have been able to enter, uh, the vast majority of which were in, uh, of whom were in Afghanistan, uh, sorry, in Pakistan and in Iran, uh, but then more recently, uh, it's been harder for them to even enter those countries. Yeah, and they they need. They need visas in most cases, um, and they're not easy to get. The passport office wasn't working. This this young woman, um, Shakria, didn't have a passport before the collapse, and so she couldn't get one. Um, even if they do have one, they can't get visas to the majority of countries. I mean, Afghans have one of the worst passports in the world when it comes to visa fee free travel, and that's actually the. That's these, these visa laws are put in place to keep out asylum seekers, which the West doesn't want. So it's, it's very stark, the difference um, in treatment between the vast majority of refugees who need smugglers to escape and what's happening in Ukraine right now, which is, of course, good. People should be allowed to flee wars without having to resort to smugglers. Matt, before we uh, uh, go to the situation, the political situation in Afghanistan now, and of course later your book, uh, if you could talk about the humanitarian crisis, as we said in the introduction, 75% uh, of Afghanistan's population has now fallen into acute poverty, 5 million Afghans uh, facing uh, acute malnutrition, and, and the UN Secretary General warning that, that the country was hanging by a thread, uh, uh, could you talk about what you know of the causes of this crisis and what you think uh, needs to be done? Well, one thing we have to understand is that there's been a malnutrition, a poverty crisis in Afghanistan for a long time. Um, poverty and malnutrition actually got worse during the U.S. occupation because of the conflict and because of the ineffectiveness of development and aid. But, of course, the collapse has made it far worse. You know, we, over 20 years, built the most aid-dependent state in the world, perhaps in history, and the sudden withdrawal of that aid has had predictable consequences. It's led to this near collapse of the government and um, a situation where people don't have enough to eat, where they're in some cases selling their children, uh, you know, in, in very young marriages in order to survive, where they're fleeing across borders just to find jobs. So, that, so people are fleeing a catastrophe that we have direct responsibility for, but under the, you know, the refugee laws that, that we have today, that's not that wouldn't count. Uh, that, that doesn't make them eligible for asylum. You know, someone fleeing starvation is not considered a refugee uh, in the classic definition of the term in Geneva Convention of 1951. Um, and yet, that is absolutely what's driving a lot of Afghans to leave their country. You said, Matt, that uh, a humanitarian a humanitarian crisis is not grounds for uh, Afghans or others seeking uh, uh, asylum uh, refugee status. 
But in addition to the humanitarian crisis, there have been widespread reports of the Taliban cracking down on uh, uh, women, uh, women activists, uh, former members, uh, members of the former government, as well as on journalists. Uh, I mean, are those people still trying to uh, flee the country? They are, but like I said, it's very difficult to leave. You know, people are facing risk of persecution. I have friends there, you know, every day I wake up to messages on my phone, people who are desperate to get out. It's, it's very, very difficult for them to get visas and leave. And once they do, even if they can get to a neighboring country like Iran and Pakistan, they're looking at waiting years um, for, for refugee resettlement. But there's a lot of people who are trying to get them out. These are people who, who want to leave, who have people in the West who, who want to help them get out, support them. They're people we have a responsibility for. Um, due to our long involvement in the country and the, the mess we've left behind. And yet, again, because of visa restrictions, because of immigration laws, because of our, you know, man-made constraints, um, these people are trapped in a desperate situation. And so that's really, I think, what we should be aware of. And one of the things I wanted to, you know, explain in my book is just how much of this the suffering and restrictions faced by refugees, faced by migrants, are the result of border policies, are the result of laws. And it, it really takes a case like Ukraine, where people are, are just leaving, you know, they're just getting in their car and driving to Poland, for us to see just how much of the suffering is, is actually unnecessary in places like Afghanistan. Let's take a deep dive into your book because you tell the story so graphically. Uh, what happens to refugees, you know, those who are, quote, worth saving and those who aren't? Matthew Aiken's book is called The Naked Don't Fear the Water an underground journey with Afghan refugees. We have a rule on democracy now, Matt, and that is no sound bites. So you've got to give us the whole meal here. Can you talk about the journey you took, the obstacles, the horror people face when they're fleeing a desperate situation, which is what you could describe Afghanistan, the country as over the last decades of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. Talk about your journey. Well, the story begins with my friend, whom I call Omar, in the book. And Omar was, you know, one of the first people I met in Afghanistan. When I went there, uh, shortly after I went there in 2008, he had grown up in exile. His parents fled the Soviets. You know, we have to remember Afghanistan's been at war for 40 years now, tragically. And they came back after 2001 full of hope for the future of their country, for this era of development and peace that the West had promised to Afghans after the U.S. invasion. And... He became a translator with the American military. He was also working for uh, Canadians. He, he spoke English. Then he decided he wanted to work with journalists, so that's when we met. And we worked together for many years in the country while I was living in Afghanistan. I got to know his family as well. And like many Afghans, he dreamed of emigrating to the West. He actually applied for one of these um, special immigrant visas that the U.S. grants to employees, uh, local employees in Afghanistan and Iraq. He should have qualified, but because of all the paperwork restrictions, he was rejected. So this happened in 2015, when, as you probably recall, there was a migration crisis in Europe. 
a million people crossed the Mediterranean Sea. It was the largest movement of refugees in, in history in these little rubber rafts. So the borders open, in Europe opened briefly, and Omar thought, this is my chance to go. So he decided to take the smuggler's road to Europe in order to escape, and I decided to go with him. But the only way that I could do that was to go undercover as an Afghan refugee myself um, because of the danger of being kidnapped or being arrested and separated. And because I um, you know, have my, my, my mother's ancestors are Japanese, but I, I look Afghan and I speak Persian from living there for so many years. So I was able to do that. So the book is a story um, of our journey together through the migrant underground to Europe. So talk about the journey you took. Talk about where you started with your friend Omar and what you faced. Well, it started in Kabul when he decided to go and he was on the fence about leaving for a while because he'd fallen in love with, you know, um, a young woman, the neighbor's daughter. and. He didn't want to leave and, and risk losing her, but ultimately he realized that, that was the only way his father, her father, who didn't want the marriage to happen, was going to give her in her, in her hand because he needed to go and have something to show. He could, he could bring her legally to Europe, perhaps. So he made the decision to set off. Um, and we, we traveled to the border, the same place I was last fall. You know, this is the Iranian border. It's a, it's a desert uh, between Iran and Afghanistan, and this is where migrants crossed. A very dangerous journey um, takes you through wild terrain controlled by drug smugglers and, and insurgents. So we ended up in a smuggler's safe house there, and there were many twists and turns, which I, I guess I shouldn't get into here, but eventually we found ourselves um, in Turkey, and then from Turkey, we went to the coast again with smugglers, and we were driven to the beach and deposited around midnight and told to get on board a little rubber raft. So there was about 40 people, uh, men, women, and children, some of them Syrians, some Afghans, some African, but we were all together in this tiny boat that set off into the sea around midnight. And that was the, the crossing that, that many refugees made. Uh, in hopes of reaching safety on the Greek islands. Matt, you said that, that Omar himself grew up in exile. He didn't grow up in Afghanistan. He and his family returned to Afghanistan uh, in 2001 after the Taliban were ousted. Where did he grow up? And then also explain the, uh, the role of smugglers, uh, who they are, and, and the exorbitant sums they often charge uh, people trying to flee. Yeah, they do. Um, they do often represent, you know, life savings for people. These these sums of money that they have to pay. And the more money you have, the safer your journey. Um, and and the less money you have, the more risks you're you're forced to take. But the fact of the matter is, as I as I mentioned. Almost every refugee needs a smuggler because they're they're not allowed to cross borders. They they're they don't have they come from countries normally that uh, who where, where, that their passports don't allow them to travel. So smugglers are a necessity. They're often scapegoated for the migration crisis, but in reality, the they're they're 
that are created by borders. You know, the harsher a border is, the more difficult it is to cross, the more people are going to be willing to pay smugglers, the more of an economy it creates. And this is something Afghans have lived with for decades. You know, like I said, Omar grew up in Iran and he and his family, you know, were also in Pakistan. They were on the move throughout his childhood. Very often they were crossing borders with the help of smugglers. And one of the things that I talk about in the book that, you know, in terms of history is how these borders have gotten more and more difficult to cross over time. So when they were fleeing the Soviets at that time, it was actually relatively easy to cross. In some places, you might just pay a small bribe to a border guard. But over the years, as, as neighboring countries have had to keep out Afghan migrants, they've built walls, they've stepped up patrols, they've increased the violence of the borders. Uh, that's just meant that people have to pay more and go further, take deeper detours into the uh, mountains. The bribes that are paid now have increased. The cost has increased. And yet people are still crossing. And yet, you know, there's there's been a massive wave. You know, when I was on the border uh, this fall, we saw, I was told by smugglers there that they've never seen this many people crossing. There was an estimate that maybe a million Afghans have crossed into Iran uh, this fall. So the border is don't keep people out. They don't keep desperate people from moving, but they do enrich smugglers. One of the things you exposed, Matt, was the drone strike at the very end, the last one that the world saw because all the world's media was there. Um, though that happened many, many, many times before throughout Afghanistan, where there weren't witnesses, where there weren't journalists, uh, creating so many internal refugees who then ultimately are the refugees who try to leave the country. And I wanted to connect it to something that just happened a few weeks ago in the Senate. In January, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the costs of 20 years of the U.S. drone strikes. The hearing began when the committee chair, Senator Dick Durbin, played a clip from Democracy Now! of a Yemeni victim of a U.S. drone strike. Among those who testified was Hina Shamsi, the director of National Security Project for the ACLU, which represents survivors of the August 29th drone strike in Kabul that you so well documented that killed 10 Afghan civilians. I've listened to fathers describe the horror of having to pick up the body parts of their children. I've listened to one of my clients who struggled to breathe through her despair after the killing of her husband, an aid worker for an American NGO, and three of her sons, and one of her grandchildren. My client's grief is compounded by the fact that for 19 days, our government kept up false allegations about their loved ones, wrongly asserting the strike was righteous and successful against ISIS operatives. The Pentagon later admitted its mistake, but the damage is done. Hina Shamsi's testimony drew an angry response from the South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, whose second biggest source of campaign contributions for his 2020 re-election campaign were employees of the major drone producer Lockheed Martin. This is Senator Graham. Afghanistan is a breeding ground for terrorism as I speak. Everybody that we work with is being slaughtered. And we want to talk about limiting, closing Gitmo and restricting the drone program. You're living in a world that doesn't exist. 
So that's Lindsey Graham lecturing Hina Shamsi. Matt, can you describe the world that does exist as you saw it with the U.S. drone strikes in Afghanistan? Well, yeah, I was there the next morning after this drone strike in Kabul, and I saw um, some, some body parts in the wreckage of the vehicle that the U.S. had destroyed inside a family home. Um, those, some of those body parts belong to the seven children who were killed in the strike. Um, and as you mentioned, this strike was one of many. You know, this was well documented because it happened in Kabul at a time when the world's attention was focused. But but there's countless strikes that have taken place in remote areas where people can't visit. And we just have the military's version um, of events. But, you know, the, the point is right now that we have a direct responsibility for what has happened in Afghanistan. Um, there's there's no easy solutions. Um, I don't think I don't think just sealing off the borders and and bombing them with drones is is, is in any way um, going to help the situation. And it's 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 not reflective of the responsibility we bear. We should be you know working to actively alleviate the humanitarian crisis as best we can. Instead, we're cutting off the Afghan Central Bank's funds and, and seizing it, saying we're going to distribute it to the 9-11 families. So I think people would just like to turn their backs on Afghanistan and, and forget about them. But the truth is that we have much more responsibility to for what Afghans are fleeing than Ukrainians, for example. No, and if you could explain that last point, um, it's one that we have focused on a lot. Uh, but this issue, if we could end on these sanctions against the money, uh, we had on a mother whose son was killed in the 9-11 attacks, uh, Phyllis Rodriguez. And she said, not in her son's name. Does she want the people, the sons and daughters of Afghanistan to suffer as her family has suffered losing him? This point of the sanctions put on the aid to Afghanistan um, that is preventing the people of Afghanistan from getting their money. What we've done is we've frozen the deposits that the Afghan Central Bank had in, in U.S. banks, and that has completely crippled the financial system and exacerbated the, the, the terrible crisis that's happening in the country. And, uh, you know, to, 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 to seize this money and say you're going to distribute it to the 9-11 families, to me, is, is not only cruel, but illogical, because this money doesn't belong to the Taliban, right? It, it, it belongs to the Afghan people. If we don't recognize the, the Taliban as a legitimate government of Afghanistan, which we haven't, then, um, then it's not their money. But it's clearly a policy that's being done for domestic reasons, for, for, for domestic political reasons, and I think it is um, sadly representative of an administration that clearly um, is not thinking about Afghans first. Award-winning journalist Matthew Akins, author of the new book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. Oh, and this update. Earlier this week, the Biden administration designated Temporary Protective Status, or TPS, for Afghanistan, which will protect Afghan refugees from deportation for 18 months, including the 76,000 who fled after the U.S. military withdrawal and arrived here before March 15th. The move came about two weeks after Biden granted TPS to Ukrainians.
And that does it for our show. Happy early birthday to Tammy Warrenoff. Democracy Now! is accepting job applications. You can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Gosda, Messiah Reds, Nareen Shea, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Camille Baker, Trina Nadura, Sayonakov, Tamri Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlon, Juan Carlos, Davila. Special thanks to Julie Crosby. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report, asking you to make the call that makes the difference. Your call makes Free Speech TV happen every day, and it's Free Speech TV called Just Solutions. And I also want to mention that you were, I believe, the producer for Phil uh, Donahue when he was on NBC, that whole story with him. Dump the show when you were the number one rated show because they were talking about what we're talking about today. Anyway, Jeff, take it away. All right, thanks so much, Frank. And I'm going to talk about the Phil Donahue censorship. Uh, thanks to the organizers of this event. I've learned enough. This is Jeff Cohen on Pirate TV, everybody. Uh, and uh, so the Tower of Babel is going down. And you might say that um, there's so much information out there. Um, we're talking about uh, one of the articles, I mean, um, the end of the cabal, Babylon has fallen. I thought this was an interesting piece. And um, forwarded from an expose, the, the pedos and the cabal. And it's got a simple statement here. It says, in Russia, in the Kaluga region, a replica of the Tower of Babel was burned. According to Biblica tradition, the Tower of Babel is mankind's first attempt to build a world empire that would unite all the peoples and nations that inhabited the earth. It is mankind's first attempt to challenge God and place and take his place. It was God himself who destroyed the tower. The fact that Russia has just now decided to burn a replica of the Tower of Babel has a clear symbolic meaning. Russia is telling the lords of the Kabbalah that their dream of building a world government has finally gone up in smoke. Russia is letting the whole world know that the new world order is defeated. And, uh, I mean, it, the, Rama, you were going to print something out um, about this character that uh, um, I don't know where I put it just now. Oh. Henry Kissinger uh, oh. here this one you're going to print the article yes there was something here revealed Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is only a puppet 
Behind Klaus Schwab in the World Economic Forum stands the CIA. Klaus Schwab was, as a student in 1960, recruited by Henry Kissinger for the CIA to become the front man of the World Economic Forum. In fact, as the World Economic Forum is a creation of the real Dr. Strange Love, John Kenneth Galbraith, and the war criminal Henry Kissinger. CIA is like the Fed, not state-owned. Yet, uh, what are you doing, honey? We're getting music ready. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, you were going to print this article out, so you didn't do it. No, I didn't. Okay, well, okay. Well, tomorrow. Okay, well, just. I just did the brief finish of this. So, again, the, the fact is the World Economic Forum is, the, is, crea- is a creation of the real Dr. Strangelove, John Kenneth Galbraith, and the war criminal Henry Kissinger. CIA is like the Fed, not state-owned. Rather, a privately Fed-owned organization. Uh, that's the reason why the CIA and also the FBI could work against an elected American president because they don't work for the state. They believe to be the state that stands over all the other elected states and treats them like colonies themselves. I mean, we've got stuff out here that's just like, It's very creepy, too. I mean, this is a Mm -hmm. global crime syndicate, a very long read. But um, there's a little bit here. I'll read everything. But this goes back to October 23rd, 2021. Global crime syndicate, mafia, princes, secret societies, spiritans, or the congregation of the Holy Spirit under the protection of the Immaculate Heart of the Virgin Mary, are a Catholic priesthood that works closely with nuns and covertly works with female assassins who use seduction and emotional manipulation to infiltrate and target good men. MKUltra. That's right, MKUltra program. John Fogarty is the current Superior General of the Spiritans, and he is from Ireland. Happy St. Patty's Day. Oh, the Guinness and Hennessy banking families are managers of the Spiritans, and they are Anglo-Irish bloodlines that involve with both both Catholicism and Protestantism. They work with the daughters of the Holy Spirit and the sisters of the Holy Ghost, an American order of nuns founded by John Hennessy. Edward Hennessy Jr. managed the Vatican Bank, is a Knight of Malta, Vatican Knight of St. Gregory, and a manager businessman in the United States. The Guinness and Hennessy families are both involved with banking and brewing and connected with the Irish Mafia. 
The Catholic Church hires women to sexually target men who they mark as enemies so they can infiltrate, spy, and sometimes murder them. And I'm just going to say it, you know, uh, what's his name here? Mama? No, Mr. Smith. Will Smith. Will Smith and his wife are toasting to drinking some wine, and the lady right next to him is a known murderer, child murderer. And she proudly bears the title of being a cannibal, and her ex husband's there too. I'm just, it, this is pretty ugly stuff. Mm-hmm. The Spiritans manage female assassins and they worship the Virgin Mary. Princess Mary of Denmark is their modern day Virgin Mary and she has Scottish ancestry. Maryland, the, the, the state, was named after Henrietta Marta of France, who was also Queen Consort of England. France, and Ireland, and she was both a Bourbon and a Medici, as in the Medici banking system. Prince George's County in Maryland, which is part of Washington, D.C., was named after Prince George of Denmark, D.C., and is located in both Virginia and Maryland, and is named after the Virgin Mary. There is absolutely no separation between church and state in the United States, as the capital, Washington, D.C., is located in two states, named after the religious idol, the Virgin Mary. Uh, And this is, it just, it goes on. I'm not going to make you lose your mind. I'm just saying that all this stuff is coming up. You know, we can't play RT. We can't enjoy Lee Camp because Dish Network pulled it. And it's not on the Internet anymore either. I'm just going to just read one more little thing here. The Vatican is the smallest nation on the planet, and it is also a monarchy. The Holy See is a corporation, and the entity that operates through the Vatican, through the Vatican City. The Vatican is extremely secretive and criminal, and it uses religion as its shield. The Vatican was established as a sovereign nation through the Lateran Treaty of 1929, under the fascist leader of Italy, Benito Mussolini, who was put into power by the House of Savoy, or Italian royal family. The Vatican operates as an intelligence network and uses its priesthood as watchers over society. Cardinals operate as senators. Archbishops operate as governors. Cardinal Cardinal Timothy Dolan is a high-level archbishop for the Vatican, and he oversees New York City, 
Cardinal Sean Patrick O'Malley is the Archbishop of Boston. The Vatican recruits and initiates pedophiles as priests. Pedophilia is an initiation for Catholic priests. Jesuits and Franciscan priesthoods operate as spies and infiltrators. The black nobility or the Roman nobility are the owners of the Vatican. The the Colonna and Tortonia families hold the two hereditary positions of prince assistants of the papal papal throne, and they oversee the pope for the black nobility. Any family that produced papers for the Vatican are royalty. Most of the black nobility are Vatican fascists in Italy, fascists in Spain, and the Nazis in Germany. The the Pacelli family are members of the black nobility. Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, who later became Pope Pius XII, signed the Nazi-Vatican alliance or Reichskonkordat with Nazi Vice-Chancellor Franz von Papen, who was also a Vatican Knight. The Italian royals and the black nobility have frequently married with the royals and nobles of the previous Holy Roman Reichs in Germany and in Austria. I'm just pulled something out of here. It's very sad. It's uh, There's a little bit here on Scientology, too. Scientology is a secretive religious organization of spiritual super, super nas, sup, supremacists uh, that uses electronic weapons to torment and terrorize people in society. Scientology was influenced by the occult and is really a DARPA program. Jack Parsons was an occultist and a rocket engineer who worked with the United States federal government. He was close friends with L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. Scientologists are using neurobiohacking software. Oh my God. Wait a minute. Jack Parson was the occultist and a rocket engineer who worked with the United States federal government. He was close friends with L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, and founder of Scientologists. Scientologists are using neurobiohacking software like Genesis, Neuron, and Brian, and Brian which are neuro and biological simulation programs and can really be used to operate through any modern electronic system and radiate electronic 
electronic emissions, including wireless frequencies, to hack into a person's mind or body. Genesis Software was created by the Jesuit-educated James Bauer, United States Patent 6506148, under Luce Hendricus G is titled Nervous System Manipulation by Electromagnetic Fields from Monitors. And his other pat patent is U.S. Patent 6,238,300. Six titled Remote Magnetic Manipulation of Nervous Systems, and both support the scientific basis for using electromagnetic frequencies emitted from electronics to manipulate the human physiology by hacking the human nervous system. David Miscavige is the head of the Church of Scientology He's a Roman Catholic with Polish and Italian ancestry. David Miskaviv is an agent of the Colonna family, which are Roman and papal nobility. The Colonas also established a Polish branch called the Colonna Waluski family. The actress Brooke Shields is related to the Torlonia banking family of Rome, and the actor Richard Gere is friends with Prince Guido Torlonia. David Mayer de Rothschild is of the British noble and banking family, and he can be seen with many Hollywood actors, including... Kevin Spacey, Sylvester Stallone, and Glenn Close. Many actors are Scientologists or have access to electronic weapons developed by DARPA and the Church of Scientology. Scientology and Hollywood are using covert electronic weapons on society, and they especially target people who speak out against corruption, organized crime, and child trafficking. Tom Cruise is a top member of Scientology, and he was married at the Castello Odescalci, which is owned by the Odescalci family, another Roman and papal nobility. Count Glenn Luca Passi de Prepasulo is a noble of Venice. He is married to the Hollywood actress Jessica Chastain. And they are close friends with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. Both Scientologists, oh. The Smiths also financed a Scientology school for children. Prince Mario Max 
of Sh of Sh Schoenberg LePay works in Hollywood and is a top authority over Scientology in Hollywood. He can be seen with numerous actors and musicians, including Nicole Kidman. Many Hollywood actors are Scientologists and also friends with the various royals and nobles of Europe. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I just... Um, this is all very ugly. Nasara now, very much so, very much so. Um, so we will, let me just play this a little bit. I've learned an awful lot. Uh, today, progressives are valiantly fighting against racism and inequality in our country. But a lot of progressive groups never talk about U.S. foreign policy. As my colleague David Swanson's always saying, they seem to be ignoring 96% of humanity. And I would argue that U.S., that racism is at least as devastating in U.S. foreign policy as it is in U.S. domestic policy. And that racism has been an underpinning of U.S. foreign policy, certainly through the decades of the Cold War, which was allegedly a conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, but few Russians were killed. Uh, while U.S. foreign policy was massacring people of color, largely civilians from Southeast Asia to Southern Africa to Central America and beyond. Midway through the Cold War, Martin Luther King Jr. in April 67 came to New York City and did a speech at Riverside Church. It was not just a speech against the Vietnam War. Indeed, the speech was titled Beyond Vietnam. It was a criticism of the racist and imperial underpinnings of U.S. foreign policy uh, during the Cold War. King said that the U.S. was on the wrong side of the world revolution from Vietnam to South Africa to Latin America. King criticized what he called our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America. He asked, why is the U.S. suppressing revolutions of the shirtless and barefoot people of Global South instead of supporting these revolutions? And then he commented, complaining of, quote, capitalists of the West, investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries, unquote. That speech is generally not allowed to be heard in mainstream media today. But it was heard loud and clear back in 1967, and it was a reflection of the Cold War hysteria in the U.S. news media that so many liberal outlets denounced King's speech. The New York Times had an editorial denouncing the speech. The Washington Post patronized, quote, King has diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, his people, unquote. <coughs> Life magazine engaged in classic media red baiting when they referred to the speech as, quote, demagogic slander that sounded like a script for radio Hanoi, unquote. 
Now, as soon as the Cold War started in the 1940s, it was accompanied by red baiting and the blacklist here in the U.S. that deeply undermined U.S. media and did so for many decades, including up to the 2003 when I was at MSNBC and was politically purged from my job alongside Phil Donahue. Overseas wars, whether they're hot wars or cold wars, have always led to repression and censorship here at home. Uh, the blacklist, of course, had a devastating impact on Hollywood. We heard from an earlier speaker a devastating impact on unions and union activists. But it also had a devastating impact on the U.S. news media, where reporters, editors, producers had to pledge loyalty against communism. George Clooney made an excellent movie celebrating Edward R. Murrow for having taken on the red-baiting Senator Joe McCarthy late in 1953. But I've never seen a Hollywood movie about the U.S. journalists that were red-baited and purged, including friends of Edward R. Murrow that he did not defend, and, and, and journalists at other outlets. Television remains a dominant medium in our country. And it was forged, it was birthed at the time of the Cold War and the blacklist. And that put a stamp on television and television news that has continued up through the present day. I founded the Media Watch Group Fair in 1986. And I immediately started having meetings with executives at television news, CNN, PBS, ABC News, and this was decades after the blacklist had ended. And with documentation, I went to these executives and I said, in your debates of the right versus the left, you have fire-breathing right-wingers like Pat Buchanan and Bob Novak, uh, but you don't allow any genuine leftists, even mild-mannered leftists, to appear with the fire-breathing right-wingers. Instead, the left is represented by these forever backpedaling, retreating, mealy-mouthed corporate Cold War liberals. And these executives knew what they were doing. Noam Chomsky, for example, was off limits at these TV news channels. Noam Chomsky, who appeared at that time and now in mainstream news outlets across the globe, on public television across the globe, except in the country where he lives and the country that he analyzes the most closely. At CNN, an executive tried to placate me by reminding me that he had once worked in a campaign that was led by Jim Hightower. And I had to point out to him, but you don't allow Jim Hightower or other genuine progressives to appear on CNN. When I was at ABC, I had this discussion with Ted Koppel where I said, FAIR's research has proven that if you're going to be a U.S. guest that discusses U.S. foreign policy on Nightline, you have to have been someone with experience in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. So I said, given that requirement, I'm wondering why have you never booked Daniel Ellsberg as a guest? 
because he was in the foreign policy establishment before he joined the peace movement. And Koppel's reaction was, I think Daniel Ellsberg is very brave. He shows a lot of courage. But he strikes me as something of an extremist. At which point I immediately responded that Fair's research has shown that extremism shouldn't bother you at all, Mr. Koppel. Your most frequent guests, the ones that appear over and over, are Elliot Abrams, Jerry Falwell, Patrick Buchanan, Al Haig, and Kissinger. Now, um, the Cold War continued to narrow the political spectrum uh, and who's allowed into the debate long after the Soviet Union collapsed. I could still feel the Cold War's impact in 2002 and 2003 when I was working at MSNBC run by NBC News and the new war against Iraq was being cranked up. And I was the senior producer, as, as Frank said, on the most watched program on MSNBC, the Phil Donahue primetime show. And I want to end my remarks by talking about what I witnessed during that period. One night we booked uh, Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General, who talked eloquently against this push to invade Iraq. And the next morning, we learned from management how we had screwed up, that Ramsey Clark is not supposed to appear on MSNBC. Uh, this is nearly 50 years after Joe McCarthy, and there was some sort of blacklist that no one had told us about, and we made the mistake of booking Ramsey Clark. Management warned us repeatedly that Phil Donahue was coming across to viewers as un-American, and they actually used that word. As the Iraq invasion grew closer, management took over the Phil Donahue show and they imposed the quota system. They said if we wanted to book one guest who was opposed to the push toward an invasion of Iraq, we had to have two guests that were pro-invasion. If we booked two guests on the left, we had to have three guests on the right. At one meeting, a producer said, I think I could book Michael Moore for Thursday, and Michael was known as a serious critic of the push toward invading Iraq. And the producer was told, you'll have to have three right-wingers for ideological balance. I thought privately about proposing Noam Chomsky as a guest, but you can imagine the problem. Our stage couldn't accommodate the 28 right-wingers we would have needed for ideological balance. Ten days after the biggest peace demonstrations in global history, MSNBC canceled the Donahue show for purely political reasons. Did management say, wow, look at the size of these demonstrations. If we unleash Phil Donahue, we're going to have a huge audience. No. For political reasons, they terminated our show. How do I know it was political? Well, memos started leaking out from NBC News. And one of the memos worried that Donahue would be, quote, a home for the liberal anti-war agenda at the same time that our competitors are waving the flag at every opportunity, unquote. That memo asserted that Donahue represents, quote, a difficult face for NBC News in a time of war. So Donahue primetime was canceled by MSNBC three weeks before the invasion of Iraq. Oops.
I pushed a button wrong. Nobody can call you, isn't that right? Leave it that way. If you, I'm very sorry, everybody. I made a boo boo. I'll get back there just a second. I accidentally pushed a button that wasn't supposed to be pushed. Okay, right back there. Here we go. Sorry. News, but Donahue was not an appropriate face for NBC News, but Michael Savage was. And I want to remind you, and this is my final comment, this was 50 years after, 5-0, 50 years after the rise of Senator Joe McCarthy and more than a decade after the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War was persisting in U.S. news media and still does to this day. Thank you. Thanks for organizing this event. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, Peter McLaren is a professor of education and critical studies at Chapman University here in Southern California. He is the author of many books on the topic of critical pedagogy and revolutionary politics, including the recent Critical Pedagogy and Insurrection. Um, Peter, are you there? I'm there. Yeah, can you hear me? All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to Frank and Rachel and to Code Pink and everyone who made uh, this really amazing and important event possible. I'm going to be speaking um, primarily about liberation theology, its birth, and the, the historical assault on liberation theology. Recognizing the historical alliances that the church had made with colonial powers and empires of pillage and plunder, Pope John Paul the 23rd through the 1962, actually to 65, Second Vatican, Second Vatican Council, attempted to reclaim the early roots of the church, the church of the first 300 years before it was recognized by its critics, the persecuting church that had, among other things, infamously ignited the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition, was complicit in helping Nazis escape to Latin America after World War II. The Conference of the Latin American Bishops that was held in 1968 in Medellin, Colombia, marked the beginning of a seismic shift within the Catholic Church that began to arc somewhat towards the left. And it was here that bishops from all over Latin America agreed that the church should take a specific stand, which they called a preferential option for the poor, while developing a catechism of liberation undergirded by the gospel teachings of Jesus so that the poor could, in effect, liberate themselves from the institutionalized violence of poverty and capitalist exploitation. In the philosophy that underlay liberation theology, one that combined Christianity with a Marxist critique of political economy, had been drawn up at a meeting of Latin American theologians initiated by Gustavo Gutierrez in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 1964. Archbishop Helder Camara, who was famous for stating, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint, but when I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist led 40 bishops late at night in the catacombs of Domitilia outside of Rome. And after celebrating the Eucharist, they signed a document under the title, The Pact of the Catacombs, challenging themselves and others to live lives of poverty, 
Did they dedicate themselves to serving the two-thirds of humanity who live in poverty? So liberation theology became a powerful movement for social justice within the Catholic Church throughout the 1970s and 1980s in brushing against the grain of traditional Catholic catechesis. For decades, the Catholic Church had been extremely adverse to social justice movements involving members of its ecclesiastical ranks, often associating such movements with communism. And this was made clear as early as the anti-communist encyclical Divini Redemptoris, written by Pope Pius XI in 1987, that formalized the Vatican's inevitable opposition against left-wing social movements, such as Dorothy Day's famous Catholic worker movement. Now, ironically, uh, today, uh, Dorothy Day has been named a servant of God by the Vatican and seems destined for sainthood. Um, so the persecution of priests who supported liberation theology became rampant in countries such as Brazil, Chile, El Salvador, Guatemala, Colombia, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Uh, storied educator Paulo Freire, a Catholic, was thrown into prison in June 1964 for support of teaching campesino communities through the uh, practice of what came to be known as a pedagogy of the oppressed. Father Ernesto Cardinal, the Nicaraguan priest and poet who became the Sandinista Minister of Culture, famously remarked, for me, the four Gospels are all equally communist. I'm a Marxist who believes in God, follows Christ, and is a revolutionary for the sake of his kingdom. It was interesting because I once sat beside Father Cardinal uh, on Hugo Chavez's TV show, Al Presidente in Caracas. What an amazing experience that was, uh, but that's for another time. Liberation theology gained international attention, attention after the government assassination of six Jesuit scholars, their housekeeper and their daughter, on the 16th of November, 1989, on the campus of the Central uh, Americana University in, El, in San Salvador, El Salvador. These Jesuit priests were shot dead by soldiers because they had pushed for negotiations between the government and between radicals. And prior to these horrific murders, which you know made international headlines, the now canonized Archbishop Oscar Romero had been assassinated in 1980, uh, offering mass in the chapel of the hospital, Divine Providence, after famously speaking out against poverty, social injustice, and torture, and urging President Jimmy Carter to stop sending helicopter gunships to assist the Salvadorian military. Pope John Paul II was very much opposed to communism, obviously, and he considered liberation theology a dangerous development within the church. In the 1970s, shortly after he was elected Pope, he began to oppose liberation theology directly and the church hierarchy moved decidedly to the right. It's been written that he gave cameo public endorsements for military dictatorships during visits to Argentina in 1982 and Chile in 1987. And early in the history of liberation theology, one of its most virulent opponents in North America, of course, was Ronald Reagan, who was intent on its utter destruction. As Noam Chomsky explains, and I quote the United States, not content to sit back and watch an openly Marxist theology take hold in Latin America, a theology which threatened the U.S.'s economic and military domination of the region, quickly moved to wipe out this emerging movement through violence. It did this through its strategic and logistical support of military dictatorships, its training of the death squads in the school of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. As early as 1969, the Rockefeller Report, 
identified liberation theology as a threat to the corporate interests and the security of the United States. Following this, the clandestine Operation Condor was put in place. Operation Condor was a major plan of inter-service and regional cooperation sharing of joint intelligence among the U.S. and the right-wing dictatorships of the southern cone of South America, including Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Brazil, in order to maintain an intelligence sharing program of state terror, political repression. Well, the program actually began in 1968, but was fully implemented by 1975, and was responsible for as many as more than 60,000 deaths up until 1989. In Argentina, along over 150 priests and nuns were killed, along with peasants, workers, intellectuals, and anyone associated with being part of or sympathetic towards leftist guerrilla movements or liberation theology. The program, which can be traced to the infamous School of the Americas, of course renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, because of its historical association with the training of Latin American death squads, was created to advance joint counterinsurgency operations designed to eradicate communist subversives and ideas, to suppress the influence of liberation theology and other oppositional political and or ideological positions. Through the Central Intelligence Agency, the military and the State Department, the U.S. government helped to bring military dictatorships to power, secure their stability by imposing sanctions designed to destabilize the economies of socialist regimes and by supporting and training both black op and execution squads. While the USA was not an official member of the Condor Consortium, documents that were later uncovered revealed that during time the United States provided major organizational, financial, and technical assistance to the repressive regimes involved. The secret papers of the 17th Conference of the American Armies in Mar del Plata in 1987 revealed that the U.S. military initiated numerous discussions about how to wage socio-psychological warfare against liberation theology, ecclesial and base communities, low-intensity conflict strategies using misinformation and ideological subversion. So I agree with Noam Chomsky, who says that the U.S. has often been bitterly opposed to Christianity and describes the attacks on liberation theology by the U.S. administration as, quote, the first religious war of the 21st century. And then to conclude, after the election of Reagan, the Christian right became the dominant force in the Republican Party, of course, in American politics in general, is Jerry Falwell, and Christian leaders supported the, the, evangelistic, uh, the evangelization of, of, of Latin America. Uh, basically, uh, Falwell said, I want you guys to get involved in politics and do missionary work in Latin America to counter left-wing Catholic teachers. That was one among of their, their goals. And during the 1980s, we see an amplification, of course, of anti-communism in the organizations, such as the Mormon Majority, the Religious Roundtable, Focus on the Family, Free Congress Foundation, the Heritage Foundation, and the Christian Broadcasting Network. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Okay. That's enough to curl your hair right there. Um, okay, I'm going to do something a little different. Well of the time so what can we do here 
probably you've got some ancient aliens up there again. Um, I think this has got what I want. Let me just. Was the law for about a year and a half until uh, our community was sued. Um, by a company that didn't meet our definition of a local company. Um, and so they were banned from contributing money to political elections. And um, they made the argument that that was a violation of their First Amendment rights and their 14th Amendment rights because we were discriminating against one kind of corporation against others. Um, and uh, it was thrown out in federal court. Our county agreed not to enforce it. And then our county had to pay the, the legal fees of um, the company that sued us. Now, we expected that that would happen. We actually thought they were going to sue us like immediately. And so that was actually a smart move on their part, kind of to wait for a year and a half because Democracy Unlimited moved on to other campaigns, our community moved on to other campaigns. And so it was kind of hard to put it all back together again. Um, it would have been easier if we had had kind of all the momentum of the wins. So that was a smart move on their part. Um, I'm sorry, everybody. That's, I missed the first part of that recording, so you're confused. Um, sorry. I think we'll just do this one. I think it's this one. Um... Cut the Pentagon. An action. So I want to say welcome to the Cold War Truth Commission, a day of education, testimony, and action. It's an honor and privilege and a responsibility uh, to be here today. My name is Rachel Brunke, and I'm president of the board of directors of Witness for Peace Southwest. Sincere people, we know and we believe from Congress or, or even common Americans are really asking themselves, what happened on January 6th? How did we become such a, a violent and dysfunctional and lied to and lying country? And we believe today that our testifiers will be providing a lot of that answer. Our mission with the Cold War Truth Commission is to continue exposing U.S. illegal and immoral actions in the name of anti-communism at home and abroad. We seek to show how today's perverse violence and injustice, both at home and abroad, are intimately tied up to the perpetration of the U.S. Cold War, both historically and ongoing today. We believe that unraveling the web of lies and beginning a formal truth-telling on this issue will help the people in the U.S. and around the world understand. Without truth about the U.S. Cold War, there can be no true reconciliation for our times. The Cold War Truth Commission, because it was never recognized and because it is still happening. Let the trial begin. Frank, to you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. My name is Frank Goral, and I'm an anti-war peace and justice activist. We are here today to talk about the big lie that we live here in the United States. We have many important truth-tellers who will be testifying to the illegal and immoral wars this country has waged against many poor and defenseless countries around the world, resulting in the death of between 20 to 30 million people during the so-called Cold War. Because right now we're going to show a clip, a video clip of former attorney Ramsey Clark, 
And uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about Ramsey Clark. Uh, he was the Attorney General uh, uh, of the United States under LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. After he left that position, he went to Vietnam, and he saw what he was doing there, and he became an anti-war activist of the highest level. This video clip we're going to see is an edited version of a talk Ramsey gave in 1998 at the Holman Methodist Church, the Church of the Reverend James Lawson. Uh, I was there that night. It's titled, uh, this talk is titled, Autocracy, Wealth of This Country. And I want to say this was filmed by Ralph Polk, and it's part of my film, what I'm worried about this foreign policy, what you're going to see. And due to the health reasons, Ramsey, Ramsey could not be here tonight. But here's this eight-minute clip of Ramsey Clark. You think it's been a long evening? <clears throat> Wait till I get through. But we're going to have to take some long evenings because this planet is deeply troubled, and the greatest cause of that trouble is our own government. In the speech that James, Reverend James Lawson referred to that Martin Luther King made on April the 5th, 1967, the most startling thing that he said at the time, the thing that caused the most anger and hatred to be directed toward him was this sentence. The greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own government. Mm -hmm. 31 years ago. Why anyone would have been startled is hard to say, but it was an obvious fact. But apparently we need more education in the obvious than we do examination of the obscure and unknown. Last year, U.S. military expenditures, with all the suffering on the planet, all the sickness and hunger and ignorance and pain, the American military budget was $265 billion. The second largest government expenditure for militarism was $48 billion. I just want you to know it's $758 billion now, everybody. Sad, but true. $8 billion. And that was the Russian Federation. The United States military expenditures exceed those of the top 12 government expenditures on Earth by themselves and are more than a third of all the military expenditures on the planet. We have a war party in this country and we've had it all along. You call it Democrats for a while, you call it Republicans for a while, but it has been the special economic interests in this society that have governed us from the time that we founded our governments on this continent. And the people have never controlled those governments. We call ourselves the world's greatest democracy. We are absolutely a plutocracy. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Wealth governs this country. And wealth uses military violence to control the rest of the world as best it can. We're responsible. And we will pay the price for it. If we don't control 
our violence. We don't control the effect of the symbol of our glorification of violence on our children and on the rest of the planet. Uh, and this human species is going to be the first to destroy itself completely. And that's the road the United States government has put us on. The single most pertinent statement on this issue was by Henry Kissinger. When the Iran-Iraq war began, over a million very young men lost their lives in that war. Henry Kissinger said at the beginning of the war, eight years I hope they kill each other. And that was exactly our policy. What could be better? Have them kill each other. Then who has to worry about that region anymore, you know? And don't think that's not exactly our policy. All over the world where there's poor people living today, that's the solution to overpopulation. Find triage, everyone find. Let them kill each other, let them die. And they're dying all over Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where the masses of poor people live. They're expendable there as they are expendable here. It's appalling as what we've done and what we've threatened to Iraq. The worst violence that all of our technology could unleash. And then the strangulation of the sanctions. The thing we have to realize is, it's what our government leadership has been doing all along. It's not terribly different than how we addressed the folks that were here to meet the Mayflower standing on the dock, the North American Aboriginal peoples, the Indians, as we call them. A long, steady course of destruction of those peoples. It's not terribly different than what we did to the slaves that were brought over in chains from Africa, those that survived the transit, which wasn't easy. You look at our history books, you don't read about a Philippine-American war. You read the Philippine history books, and they know about a Philippine-American war. We call it the Spanish-American war. We were liberating the Filipinos. We killed more than a million. Now we're bragging about the <clears throat> covert actions we're going to engage in against Iraq. Do you doubt for a minute that they're planning covert actions in half a dozen other places right now? And we'll react to them five years after the misery has begun and the people have been devastated. What we have to realize is that if we don't stand up and stop this now, if we can't stop these sanctions in Iraq, and if with them we can't prohibit any further use of sanctions that are designed to impact on the poor, then no poor people on the planet will ever be safe from our government and its future acts. It's imperative that we stop them in Iraq today and that we prohibit them in the future is applied to any people because it is a weapon of mass destruction. We have to stop military interventions by our government completely. We cannot permit more U.S. military interventions in foreign countries. We have to stop economic interventions. We've got to cancel foreign debt that has enslaved most of the poor countries of the planet. Let's organize through every effort and opportunity we have in our families, in our churches, in our mosques, in our synagogues. 
in our schools, at our jobs. A massive coalition committed to end militarism and economic exploitation by our government. Thank you. Ramsey Clark served as the Attorney General of the United States uh, under Lyndon Baines Johnson from 67 to 69. When this speech was given in 1998, the United States military budget was $265 billion. That number has increased to $758 60, excuse me, $768 billion by 2014. His book, The Fire This Time, U.S. War Crimes in the Gulf, is a must read. Just, we're bringing this stuff back on the table because the time is now for peace. Right, Rama? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to pass this talking stick to my sister Rainbird. And she will give the word. And it's got the angels and the fairies and the feathers and the rainbows and the crystals and the hobbits and the menahunis. And that emerald serpent feather is with us too, Quetzalcoatl. Here it comes, Rainbird. Well, I got it. Okay. <laughs> oh, I had to spit the feathers out. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for tonight. Uh, landed on a heavier note, but at least that's because we're turning it around now. So that's time. It's time. Yeah. The TV and the belly of all of it. And, uh, yeah, let's give peace a chance and do this. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> and I look forward to tomorrow, and I know we all do. So, uh, yeah, I pass that talking stick to you, Rama, and thank you for tonight. Here comes, and for Mother, too. And as always, here comes the talking stick. Oh, yeah. So tell us what this is, hon. Calling the others, Alan Watts, I played this before it seems like uh, calling them in <laughs> okay. Existence is a rhythm. Awaking and sleeping, eating and moving. And that's all we're doing. And just consider what we do every day. What's it all about? Does it really mean anything? Does it go anywhere? It's just because we want to keep on doing this out of a hoopida. So you can get a certain vision of life. 
where everything is seen to be a complex pattern of rhythm. Dances, the human dance, the flower dance, the bee dance, the giraffe dance. And that's what this all is, it's jazz, you see? This is a big jazz, this world. And what it's trying to do is to see how jazzed up it can get. How far out this play of rhythm can go. Because that's what we all come down to. going to recognize this song.
in nonviolence, the masses have a weapon which enables a child, a woman, or even a decrepit old man to challenge the mightiest government successfully. As our spirit is strong, mere lack of physical strength ceases to be a handicap. And that was the words of Gandhi. So, see you in your dreams, everyone, and on the bridge. And as Mayor Bobby Baba always says, don't worry, be happy. Inshallah, sat now. Sat Ahom and 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. No, evil, live long and prosper. Namaste, everyone. See you this afternoon.